Tuesday, February the 15th, 2021. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Hope everybody had a nice Valentine's Day with their significant others or you're hanging out by yourself and uh, going to have a little slightly different schedule this week because I'm actually going to make the trip out to Sam Houston myself this weekend for the first time. Never been out there, so I'll be uh, hang, uh, helping out on the broadcast on Friday and on Saturday night, big night Saturday coming up. So on this episode of That's What G Said, we are going to have Wednesday and Thursday racing. I'm going to roll through the full card for Sam Houston for Wednesday and Thursday. I've got some best bets for Tampa for Wednesday. There's a pick six carryover at Sam Houston on Wednesday. I think it's like 15,000 right now. And you can play that for 50 cents and you can play it for just 12% takeout and it's not a jackpot. So really positive things about that pick six if you want to jump in on Wednesday. We'll do the finale of the Book of Boba Fett with Matt Velasco. So the season finale, we'll discuss everything. We're going to break it all down from all sides. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. We're going to get into everything that happened in the seven-episode series. And then we close things out with the old wrestling rewatch. We head back to WCW 1999. Now I know what you're thinking. What awful show did Andrew Champagne pick? No, this one was actually a pretty solid show. There's a really good opening match only one or two matches throughout the card that are eh. Even the main events aren't like knock your socks off, but they're pretty fun. And everything delivers for the most part. It was one of the good remaining WCW pay-per-views left. So on this episode, Wednesday, Thursday racing, Book of Boba Fett finale, and Spring Stampede Old Wrestling Rewatch. So later in the week, we're going to catch up with Martha Clausen, and we're going to preview the Saturday stakes races for Texas Preview Night over at Sam Houston. We will do a Super Bowl recap with Eric because I wanted to get into all of that, but it'll give us another day or so to kind of dive back into the game, look at the box score, read some of the write-ups and analysis post-game. And so Eric will join me. We'll talk Super Bowl. We'll put a bow on the football season, and we'll transition into the NBA season. We'll also talk a little bit about the NBA trade deadline and look forward to uh, what's to come in NBA. We're going to start talking a lot more NBA and college basketball here in the uh, the coming weeks. So we'll have Martha talking Sam Houston. We'll have Eric talking Super Bowl and then some NBA. And then we'll give you Friday and Saturday racing action. Sam Houston for Friday and Saturday and Santa Anita and then even Fairgrounds, I think. This weekend, they've got the uh, the big stakes there with the Risen Star. So maybe we can get a guest on for Fairgrounds. Also, lots on the next episode, but plenty on this episode that is presented by Better Than Dot Vegas. Go give them a follow right now at BTV Bet. So much happening there. Now, every Monday, we have a new series called Riders Up, where we interview different jockeys from around the country. We've had uh, just finished our second interview to uh, earlier on Monday, and they will be released now each week. On their first episode, Tyler Connor joined us, and uh, we had a really cool conversation with him. It's awesome to be able to, you know, just get to know these riders a lot more than we normally do. We very rarely hear them talk. They don't get interviewed a whole lot. Just not maybe a few words before a race or after a race, but nothing really about who they are, how they got into racing, what are some of the things they like to do off track. So we get into all of that. We previewed every football game for you all year. We have pitches and pints every Saturday morning. And all of this is for free. All of these are previews that are live video streams that you can watch just by following on Twitter. It doesn't cost you a cent. You don't have to log in or sign up for anything. You just get, if you 
click the notification, you will get an alert every time Better Than Vegas tweets at BTV Bets, and you can click these, throw them on in the background, hang out, and maybe they'll help lead you to some winners. Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, cutting nets. We go through the entire college slate for each Saturday. Every Monday and Thursday, Mohawk Mania at 6.30 Eastern. Previews for the early pick five from Mohawk. Just a ton of free content, free analysis, everything trying to help you become a better better over at BTV Bets. Now, we get right into the horse racing portion of this episode. That's what G said. Joey, give us that alarm. Horse racing fans, many of us have been using the DRF, the daily racing form, for years, studying the races, keeping up to date on news with all the articles. I remember looking for a copy at the local liquor store or picking one up at the local racetrack, wherever I was going. Now it's even easier and cheaper than ever to use DRF with DRF.com and the newly optimized DRF Mobile. You can get all the tracks that you want to bet and handicap. Past performances that are mobile optimized for on-the-go handicapping on your phone. So you go to DRF.com from your mobile device, no additional cost. Tap the calendar icon on the top left. It opens all of the options for past performances and for the tools that are available. One click to bet now and DRF bets. Get real-time odds and scratches on race day. You can tap on any horse and you get those same DRF past performances that you're familiar with with a larger font for your mobile display. One click to formulator for charts, for replays if you get the formulator version. And even on the classic past performances, you get the home screen with horses, with odds, with buyers. You get a lifetime buyer speed figure graph. You can rotate your phone for the best view. And any horse that you click on, you'll see the running lines. You can easily move from horse to horse. The same data as those traditional classic DRF past performances. You get an interactive format, which is very similar to the DRF classic version that you're used to on the desktop. Every card includes live data updated instantly with those scratches. And so you get the accessibility from desktop to phone, cross-device functionality. You can take your notes and save them from one device to the next and then access your account on any of your devices. On-the-go handicapping and wagering, multiple formats to view. You got the overview page with recent speed figures, current day's odds, easy access to expert selections and analysis. You got the buyer speed figure graph with lifetime buyer speed figures and chart notes for every horse. And you got those traditional DRF pass performances that are just newly optimized for your mobile phones. They are constantly upgrading, improving, and making everything easier for you to get your handicapping done at DRF.com. Better. You want to spread your pony knowledge by. Able to. You're 
Download the Stable Duel app and play today. DRF.com for all of your past performances. Don't forget about that incredible promotion they have happening right now all the way through April the 15th. You sign up for DRF Bets. Use the promo code WINNING. Deposit $250. They'll give you an instant $250 match bonus. They'll give you a $10 free bet. All of a sudden, you're going to have $510. But the most important part, they will give you 10 free formulator cards. And now every $50 that you bet following that, you will be able to get credit for a free formulator card. So every time you bet the races there and you you spend $50, you'll get another free formulator card. So that way you're not going to have to be spending money on those past performances anymore. And then you head on over to StableDuel.com. You check out the schedule for each day, for each week. You get into your app. The app is free. They have contests all the time that are free. You end up paying your entry fee into each contest, and boom, you win that thing. Money shoots right back into your account. It's based off of a salary cap format. So if you've ever played any kind of DFS, that's the style, which means you can't just pick the the logical most likely winner in every race. You have to get a little creative. If you spend up in one race, in one of the next few, you're going to have to pick a longer shot. Lots of strategy there. Every Friday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, we have This Weekend in Stable Duel. Barry Spears, Matt DeSantis, and myself preview everything happening throughout the weekend. All the big Stable Duel games. Come and join us every Friday morning on Twitter. It is totally free. You can follow along if you follow at Stable Duel or at It's Me, Gino B, on Twitter. Wednesday. We had the Tampa. Tampa's been a big fixture of Stable Duel for the uh, the last couple months or so, and they will be for the foreseeable future. And we have three best plays for you at Tampa. If you're playing the races, if you're playing to win, pick fours, pick fives, anything at all, or if you're playing in your stable dual games, we're always going to be looking for prices here. We're never going to be dishing out anything that's that short for you because that's just not why I'm here. I'd rather give you a horse that we think is live at 15 or 20 to 1 that runs dead last than end up giving you a couple chocks that just don't do much for you in the long run. We're trying to get a little outside the box. We're trying to find things that you probably won't be getting from a lot of other places here in the third race. The number five, Cape Hedge. just feels like this is a little too high on the board for Cape Hedge. I had this horse stacked more like a five-to-one shot in here. So he was 30-to-1 last time out, but he hopped at the start. He missed the break. He recovered pretty well. He was up to fourth, about four lengths off inside, and he was traveling really well, but he was behind horses. He... And even late when it sort of felt like he was done, he kept trying down inside and, and really kept battling. I'm going to go second start off the bench, puts two together. You get a, a nice, very solid jock jumping aboard who uh, wins a lot of races here. I just love horses with this pattern when they race and they have a couple months off and then they race and they finally get to put two together. I'm expecting a big step forward from Cape Hedge. If any anything over five to one, I'll make a win wager on the number five in race number three there at Tampa. Let's get to race number five. Now, I don't think there's that much speed in here. What'll make it tricky is you have a couple of these horses who I can see maybe getting asked and maybe getting a little bit aggressive. But I think just naturally, with the draw and where the one Mirth and Merriment is positioned, they should end up really close. And I just hope that's the plan for them to get aggressive. Now, the two, Sweet Laura, hasn't really shown that much speed. The three skims hasn't shown all that much speed. The four ready to film. You see a couple races where 
she's been forwardly placed, but those races weren't exactly when they were going fast. And you've got the five sweet duchess, you know, one or two races when sprinting where they showed a little bit came from well out of it last time out going longer on the turf. And then you have finery who settled and uh, and made a big late run. Mirth and Merriment had a few months off from October to January. January 1st was actually her first start on the turf. And she, you know, she sat second and I'm I think they will just try to get the lead in here. I'm I'm hoping that's the case. Mirth and Merriment get aggressive. You got that race under your belt. If somebody does go, she can stalk nicely, but I I I would much prefer the aggressive trip here. I wouldn't want to take too short of a price, so we'd need three or over. Seven to two-ish is where I had this one stacked in race number five at Tampa. As we move to race number seven, we'll go maiden 32 claimers uh mile on the turf course here. Three-year-old Phillies. I'm looking to the six, Wasser, who has raced four times now. The first two were against maiden special weights over at Laurel, so in tougher spots. Career start number three had some legitimate trouble, and then again last time out the race. That's the race I wanted to talk about. November twenty seventh made a nice move into it, and that was not a bad effort. January the eighth was taken back inside, was about seventh, in a little bit tight, but was traveling pretty well, and then started to move up right behind the leaders, but just had nowhere to go. Had to wait, had to angle around, and then came on again for third. You're gonna get Lasix for the first time. I'm expecting a big effort from the number six Wasser, six to one on the morning line. I had this one stacked more like three to one, seven to two or so. So three best plays for you over at Tampa on Wednesday. All horses that are uh, nice prices, at least on the morning line. But remember, we have to be disciplined. So if for some reason, these horses that I dish out, if they get bet down really short, I don't end up playing them. Because with as many races as we look at, as many days as we play. Have to be disciplined. You're always going to be able to find value somewhere if you want it. So you have to establish what is value for you, and then you have to stay true to that. Let's get to Sammy Houston for Wednesday. Pick six carryover that starts in race number four. Let's get to the first couple though. And the two Euro Rich Girl looks like the one to catch. Nothing too crazy here. Peak factor is going to be tough. The five. I'm a Badger, first time starter. The Dam was a three time winner. She wouldn't have to be much to beat this group. If you're going to be, you know, fading one of the shorter prices, it would probably be the six American Enigma to me. Just a barn that just does not win a whole lot. So I wouldn't want to take a short price on them really ever. Two, three, five in the opener. In race number two, I'm looking at the four Moogie Sun. And if you're going to play an early pick four or if you're playing any early exotics, I'd single the four in here. They're going seven furlongs. Moogie Sun debuted, drew the rail, kind of slowish start, and then moved inside into some traffic. And it was a pretty good effort for second. Was beaten six lengths, but was kind of in between and won the battle for second late. So Moogie Sun, I was pretty impressed with the late interest this one showed. And Moogie Sun actually got by Bold and Wild late. Now, Bold and Wild should improve. Second start off the bench, as should Moogie Sun. Second start in just overall. Bold and Wild, it looks clearly like the one to catch, but I guess I have some concerns about the distance. I mean, there's just no other proven speed in here at all. Maybe Moogie Sun can be a little bit quicker second out. It's not as if we know he's slow. His only start, he just didn't get the best of beginnings. 
Sergeant Klein, seven furlongs feels like it might be a perfect spot. They're kind of searching for where he fits here. The one true diamond, six siblings, five of them winners, two won the debut. I I have a tough time with horses at seven. I generally want to make sure that they're really, really live because seven, seven furlongs and the rail might not be easy. They got to have to get a good beginning here. I'll lean to the four. Moogie Sun, I'll single this one in some exotics. Four over, five, three, one. In race number three, 5,000 beaten claimers. So these are claimers, four-year-olds and up, who have not won a race since August 16th or which have never won four. They'll travel a mile on the main track here. The number two is Dance Kingdom, who's going to go second start off the bench, who's going to drop in class here. I think it's a great spot for Dance Kingdom. Flashed a little bit of speed going a mile last time out. Just feels like you'll have a little more bottom in here. Second start for this barn. The number two, Dance Kingdom, is the play on top for me. I'd also use the eight, Zenucci, who just comes out of some pretty good races at the level. G's turn was really sharp that day. Attained success, came right back to win out of there. He won on June the 14th, and as a seven-time winner of this race, he would need to have not won a race since August the 16th to fit the conditions of this. So when you look back at this field, he does fit the conditions pretty well in here. I like the 8 Zanucci a bit. I'm using 2-8 in all exotics in race number 3. The fourth race, this is the one that begins the pick 6 here. Mile on the main, 10,000 non-winners of 3. The one flower house second start off the long layoff should be sharper. And with the inside draw, you'd imagine could save nice ground from from in there and uh, could be tough. But I prefer the seven gray girl go. I just like what I've been seeing from her as of late. Now, her most recent race was on the turf, and I think you can just put a line right through it. They took a shot on the grass. You can excuse it. Just hasn't been quite as good on the turf course. Now you're back to the dirt. Two starts back was a nice four and a half length winner. And overall, this is a horse who's been pretty consistent. One of the races uh, in, in a stakes at Remington on October 15th was behind She's All Wolf, who was second in the grade three by Akoa recently and has earned just under $500,000. I think Grey Girl Go is sharp on the dirt in those races and will be forwardly placed from the outside, but I don't think they need the lead if somebody else wants to go, but looking around, I don't think anyone is remotely naturally as fast as the seven hope that's the game plan to send hard here so i'll single in the pick six right off the bat i had the seven as a single if you wanted to go a little deeper one six malibu midnight the dirt form for her is a little bit sneaky i might throw her in on one ticket the two and the four they make sense they'll come closing i'd prefer the four moms pass over the two but they both should be running late the very least seven over one six four and two Race number five at Sammy Houston, a mile on the turf, $15,000 claimers. This was a fun race because I could make cases for some horses that are big morning line prices. You have the 11 Passamonte man who was three deep in between horses in a tight spot and was close up, then trapped, kind of came on again. It was a sort of a strange race on January the 22nd, going six and a half on the dirt. The only time he was on the turf, he was a winner. He's a 10-time winner. And if you put a line through the Oaklawn race, two starts back on a wet track, what's not to like about his recent form? It's about as honest as they come. The three, easy mosh. It's a great three winner. 
two starts back, that 20 claimer, that effort at Remington on October the 7th, that would be really competitive here. And it was in just a little bit too tough because he was 40-1 to 1 last we saw him. He had not run from May to July. And then he returned from May of 2020 to July of 2021. Then he returned, and his first start, he was okay. He flashed some speed. His second start back, he kind of got in, in some trouble and got the shuffle. Then they tried a stakes race with him. And if we play him off that October race, he fits in here. Nine's another one that I, I'm not sure if he'll be that big of a price just off the connections alone. Last time we saw him on the turf, he was winning a first-level allowance at Evangeline going seven and a half. The seven and the five are obviously logical, hard attack. But he's dropping in class. Didn't show quite as much last time out. He's going to need to improve off of that effort. And you've got the the five. He's a suitor who's been really tough to to knock with his recent form. Extremely consistent. 11, 3, 9, 7, 5 in the fifth at Sam Houston on Wednesday, February the 16th. We're up to race number six, start of your late pick four. Mile and a 16th on the main track. There are two horses that I like. I mean, I'm, I'm, at the price, I love Bandit Swanson and anything over seven to two. On January the 15th, he was sixth of seven. Then he kind of got beat to a spot early, so he ended up having to take back to last. It was about eight lengths off. He angled to the outside, and he really got rolling. He was just a tad short. That was six furlongs. It was a total prep, and he almost won that. His his overall form doesn't look quite as great, right? He's just two for 20, but dig into that a little bit more. He's last 10 starts, two wins, three seconds, and four thirds. Really sharp. Bandit Swanson, I think he's going to be stepping forward into a really nice effort. The six Van Glider looks like the one to beat. This one back-to-back and now enters the Diodoro Barn, who generally will improve horses a bit. You get the eight and the three. I mean, honoring major is really sharp and steps up. This is not an easy spot, though, and sometimes you get horses that might be sort of horses for courses over at Delta. I get a little worried if that's where they're sharp and they earn some of those big numbers. You get a hunk of burning love who I, I have a hard time completely leaving him out. About a year ago, he would be a very short price in a tough like this and extremely hard to beat. He's getting up there now. He's eight years old, but I mean, look at his 2020. He won eight times that year. Last year, he was in the money in seven starts. So still a, a very nice year, but not just not as dominant as he was a couple years ago. Let's get to race number seven. First level allowance, going a mile and a 16th on the turf course here. The three, daddy made me do it. That's the horse to beat, no doubt. If you're looking for another to include with them, which I will, I'm going to use the three and the eight. Treaty of Paris, Last three races all had a next out winner. Two starts back was a winner in the slop at Churchill, sitting just off a little bit. And I think that's what she wants to do. She could sit pretty close up. The nine, too much Irish should go. And maybe she tracks from second or third. Treaty of Paris in a good spot. The turf form, really nice in those two races. Lavender, who beat her last time out, just crushed a field next next out. Eight. Three, if you're looking for one more and you're going a little deeper, I mean, the 11 fetching is obvious, but I'm not nah, not the greatest post, stretches back out and probably won't be a big price. I'll, I'll go 3-8. Race number eight, 10,000 non-two claimers, six furlongs, the distance. We're going to go to the number six in here. 
Finding Silver, and this might be a single for me in the pick six. Finding Silver was bumped at the start and ended up having to go back to last, was in between horses, didn't have a ton of room, and did start to get going late. There was a three-way photo there for third. Finding Silver will now get a little bit more distance to deal with. Has a, a nice stalking style and can pass horses here. And I think with the one market brook and the inside draw, they'll be flashing speed. You've got the three lucky break. They'll be flashing some speed. I think Coach Dan isn't quite as quick, but they'll be flashing speed. Temple of Light, I don't think should be too far out of it either. And three charmer, three time charmer to the outside is really quick. So with three time charmer and market brook, those two flying, lucky break trying to push it, and then a couple other pressers, I'm hoping it sets up very well for the number six. Finding silver. I'm going to single the six if you were you know, looking deeper or underneath. I just went six, one, four in a very obvious sort of race, but I will use the six and try to zig when a lot of people will, I think, use uh, probably a lot of the logicals. Let's close it out in race number nine. Maiden special weights, five furlongs on the turf course. The one, Masabi, just missed as the betting favorite in the debut for Asmussen on January the 13th. The fourth place finisher was the next out maiden special weight winner. And now Masabi will try the turf and his damn won twice on the turf. Both were stakes races. It was actually in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies turf. So Masabi not only should improve off of that effort in the debut when just missing, but could be even better on the turf. You've got the 10, who's the other one I'll include, Bricktown. Comes out of a live race. Bricktown debuted at Remington going five. And now we'll try the turf. And there's nothing direct that ex- that really jumps out at you, but it just sounds some s- kind of sneaky under the radar grass breeding here. So I will include the ten with the one Masabi here, ten one for me in the ninth at Sam Houston to try to close out that pick six on a carryover Wednesday. Best of luck there at Sam Houston and at Tampa over on Wednesday. Let's head to Sam Houston for Thursday. We head over to Sam Houston for Thursday, February the 17th. Get those past performances out. And we'll start in race number one with the two. Hondo Lane was kind of close up on the inside and sort of got outrun a bit in the second quarter, but did keep trying down inside. Now going to go third start off the long, long layoff. I think there's a little more there than it, than it might look. Has been behind alternate time a couple, uh, in, a, in a couple different tries. And I think Hondo Lane isn't, there isn't as much separated between the two of them as there might be on the tote board. So I'll use the two with the six. The three, Bobby Don, would be underneath Eileen Hondo Lane in the opener on Thursday. Let's move to race number two. Texas bred maiden $15,000 claimers, five furlongs. The distance, Moro America from the inside on the big cutback. Big drop down from open maiden special weights to Texas bred maiden claimers. If he breaks well from the inside, he could be very, very tough in here because the two others to the outside don't seem to be naturally as fast with Bodybore, Heath, and Noah. Now, both have very, very good riders that are capable of asking them for a little bit early. I think it's all going to come down to the beginning with Moro America. So I will put the two on top. I'll single the two in early exotics, five, six, would be the other super logicals, but can't play a ticket with just um you know the logicals like that. You got to pick one, or you know it's all about your approach with the ticket. So I'll go with the two Moro America single that one from the inside on the cutback, hoping he can get the lead and be tough to pass. That Paluxy race was tough. 
the third at Sam Houston on Thursday, 25 non-threes, five furlongs on the turf course here. I will be spreading around a bit. The eight sweet Linda won off the bench previously off of a five-month break. Look at last year at the end, October the 20th, and then didn't race until March and came back and won right here at Sam Houston going five furlongs. The seven, Pink Posse, that was a pretty impressive win last time out on the front end. If she breaks like that and is asked with that kind of intent, she could be really, really tough. You got the six to the inside of... No, excuse me, you got the three. My baby's gone. Another one who was a mo- it was a fifty-seven to one shot who won by eight in the turf debut. That's it's hard not to look a little pat like not to open your eyes there, but wow, are you gonna come back like that? I mean, was it the turf? Was it a circumstance, a combination of things? My baby's gone. The eleven and the nine towards the outside. Lemons is gone is one that I would include. Second start off the bench, giving giving another shot on the turf. And then the 11, Rumpus. The post draw is what concerns me for Rumpus, but overall, his turf form is excellent. Her her turf form is excellent, Rumpus. So I stacked him 8, 7, 3, 11, 9. 8, 7, 3, 9, and 11. Those are the uh, the horses I'll have on some exotics in race number three. As we move to the fourth race, I thought the two Oklahoma Heat is the one to catch, stretching out from six and a half to a mile. Doesn't seem like there's a ton of other speed in here. And this horse has actually shown legitimate sprint speed. The four guardsman pass comes in from Oaklawn. So this is going to be a lot softer spot. And you know that he can pass horses too. I'm not as high on the six gods pick first time gelding, who was second in a similar spot. I'll take the two Oklahoma Heat. Hope that's the one that gets sent to the front end and think the four will be coming to pass them all late if they go too quick. Two four. Fifth race, first level allowance going five furlongs on the turf course. I'm looking to the seven Blues Gold, who's really sharp, has won the last two times that he was on the turf and is now going to go third start off of the form cycle. Could be even better in here. The five, he's a bomb. If you just focus in off his turf sprints, his overall record looks a lot better now. And he could end up working out a pretty nice trip from not too far off it. Because I think Agent Peter Graves is going to go and get sent. But you do have a few others in here that are pretty quick. I'll also include the 10, Rosie's Outlaw. And it has that positional speed, but can also pass some horses there. I mean, look, right inside of her, you have Spankhurst and Balky, who are both pretty fast. I think they're going to be wanting to go. So I don't know how easy it's going to be for Agent Peter Graves. I end up using 7-5-10 in race number 5. Let's get to the 6th race. Start of your late pick 4 on Thursday. E 6 furlongs the distance. These are Maidens 4 and 5-year-olds. I like the 3 Moro Wolf. First time starter for Gustafsson. The Dam won the debut. Maiden 40 going six furlongs at Aqueduct. Lone Sib won the debut. And this barn is really good first time out. You have solid connections on this play. Moro Wolf. The one I'll have on top of the very logical eight. Rush the Colors. A horse who loves to finish second with those five runner-ups. Then you've got the four Mr. Wimbledon Bay who... Did show a little bit of ability in the debut and will now step up a bit. Thought Moral Wolf, the first timer, wouldn't have to be all that much to beat this group. Three, eight, four. 
We get to the seventh race. Optional 50 non-two is going a mile on the turf course. Well, I, I thought Beer Empress, who we played last time, was extremely impressive. And will now get the rail draw. Stretches out. Tries the turf. There's not a ton of direct turf breeding, but I will include Beer Empress off of that impressive effort. The six, Caratoquina, no doubt the horse to beat. I will also use the seven because I always like when a horse improves like that, trying a, a surface or and stretching out for the first time. And that was what Ucky, I'm a Lucky Charm did. Stretched out, tried a new surface, won, but that was against Texas Breds. This is against Open Company. I mean, this will be a no doubt step up, but I'll throw in in some spots one, six, seven in the seventh. Moving to race number eight, Texas Breds, Phillies, three-year-olds, six, five furlongs the distance. The number four, Two Angels, faced Open Company last time out. Two Angels has been showing at least some early speed in here. And at the five furlong straight distance in a race where there's very little to get excited about, Two Angels is the type of horse who might just be in a good spot sitting right behind the leaders if some of them stop. The eight, Lightster, might be one of those leaders pretty quick from the outside. You've got the six and the seven as both pretty logical horses, shining example, who's been competitive at this level. And then you've got Kelly's Mandate, who is third behind shining example, will go third, start off the bench, and hopes to turn the tables on that one. Four, eight, six, seven, in race number eight at Sam Houston on Thursday. As we get to the ninth and final, mile and a sixteenth on the turf, first level allowance. The one and the eight are the two I like most. Poluxi, whose dam was a stakes winner in grade two, placed on the turf, and three wins going long on the grass. And the only other sib in this race has not tried turf. When you watch Poluxi's races too, he just looked like a horse who was going to be better with more and more distance and has the turf pedigree to boot. I think it's a good spot for the eight. The one horn of plenty, some of the turf races in New York, those would those would win this race. That same type of effort. The two painter party, capable of very good on his best day. He'll be going third start of the form cycle. And then the number five will also be using in exotics of the moment, who was a maiden breaking winner on January the 22nd, going along on the turf course there. 8125 at Sam Houston in race number nine on Thursday. So that does it for the racing portion of this episode. We are going to move along and talk a bit about the Book of Boba Fett. We are going to talk the season finale of the Book of Boba Fett with Matt Velasco. So, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! We will discuss everything. In like the world of Star Wars, everything that happened in this series, how it relates to the Mandalorian and other previous movies, series, shows, and possibly the future and other shows that it will get uh, relate to. So anything is on the table, spoiler alert here, as Matt Velasco joins me. But first, we want to hear a little bit about Sarah Candles, those all-natural soy wax, free from the toxins, free from carcinogens, free from pollutants, Sarah Candles. So you want to set the mood. You're looking for something all natural. Soy wax. Non-toxic, baby. Scents for every season. Now don't be afraid, baby. Just spell it out. See you. 
Gmail.com. And don't forget, promo code Gino gets you 10% off. Mmm. Mmm. Nom, dum, 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 dum. <laughs> Here we are. We finish up Boba Fett, the book of Boba Fett, episode seven. Matt Velasco is back with us as he has been along for this ride. He was along for the ride with the Mandalorian season two last year. He's helped us out recapping and deep diving a couple of the movies so far. Now, Matt, I mean, let's just get right into it. It was a. Let's go out guns blazing Hour long episode to finish up Like just you know give me some of the Positives negatives what stood out to you Right off the bat Oh all right I will have to take you on a Journey um let's go Yeah I've got the high of the episode I watched the episode I think at 5 A.M. 6 a.m. early On 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 Wednesday You've got that high and from that high, I sunk pretty low on this show, Gino. And I'll, I'll explain throughout the course of our deep dive, like what is the, the parts of the show that just totally confound me. But there were some great moments. And I'm now on a rebound where I'm accepting the show for what it was. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saving what I love. Right I'm now. saving what I love, not fighting what I hate. So. Yeah, it's the, the the total like um full circle, you know. Circle, uh, yeah. And I agree with you. And the for me, just some of like the major overall things, and they were things that you had been you had been kind of pointing out and sniffing out a little bit earlier than I had, and just mentioning it. And I was kind of on the okay, let's be patient and see. But I think all the way throughout, we got a lot of these. Ooh, look at this. Without a lot of plot or connection or kind of reason for the cool stuff, there was a lot of cool stuff that happened in right. every episode. But I don't feel like it all had a good enough story or kind of reason. It, it, the whole show, for example, like the pacing we talked about was bizarre. I can't recall anything like this where you have like four episodes and then episodes five through seven felt like a totally different show. Yeah. Okay. So I have a conspiracy theory and a hot take. <laughs> so, so here's the conspiracy theory. Um, and if you, you know, I know you listen to some of the the Ringer pods and and you know check out their website, which is mm-hmm. awesome, great pop culture website. And there's a sense Ben Lindbergh, who writes about the show, mentions like there there's gonna be something about the production of the show that eventually comes out, right? Um, something's I would be shocked if this was the show they had envisioned. I agree. And, and you know what? It, it made me think, you know, as we kind of, especially in, in the back half of this series with Cobb Vanth, was Gina Carano supposed to be on this show? That's my conspiracy. Right? Like, was she what, supposed to be? Was she the muscle? And there... then they rewrote the show around her absence. And now there's there's probably some good counter arguments you could make to that but given that she there was going to be a lead into rangers of the new republic mm-hmm. and she is something you know of a law and order character right in the way that Cobb vanth is in the way that boba fett aspires to be that it might have actually made their collaboration and their different philosophies as uh law enforcement might have might have been the point of the show i mean i I don't know, but but the show never in, answered like, why Grogu's in it. 
Yeah, yeah it was felt like there was something missing. You're right. That just you, you kept hitting on that. We wanted to find out in this in this particular episode. It felt like everybody's got a tie to Boba except for Grogu. Yeah. And his ties to the Mando, and so I guess you can you can sort of get there, but these events felt so much like events that should have and I mean, why aren't why wasn't this just kind of the start of Mandalorian season three? Mm-hmm. It so much of the Mando Grogu stuff had so little of Boba in it. I mean, I guess this episode had a lot of Boba because it's sort of Boba. They did try to make Boba look good at moments, but. I that's another major conflict. You were kind of hitting on it. They're just waiting around for assuming that Cobb Vanth and the the people from Freetown yeah. are going to show up, even though they didn't tell Mando that. He was just like, "Oh yeah, I know Cobb Vanth. They'll show up," and that's the, it. Like that's their plan, and just waiting on them. The plan does not make a lot of sense. So this was my in my descent into being very disappointed with the show was the more I thought about the plan and was listen, I was. Most of our episodes are deep dives, Gino. I don't read anything, but this this week I I was taking in everything. I was mm-hmm. grasping for some sort of insight to the show that it didn't offer me, and it that actually made me appreciate the episode even less because you start poking at the logical holes in the plan. Every movie, every TV show has has sure. plot holes, right? Um, the one that really gets me is that staying dug in. The middle of Mos Espa, dug in in the middle of Mos Espa, you're actually putting the people at risk and and you're stating that your goal is to protect the people of Mos Espa. And that the the tension between what Boba Fett thinks or says he's doing and what he's actually doing in this episode and for, I guess, this, you know, a good part of the series, the show never seems to be aware of the the contradictions yes. and at times total incompetence of Boba Fett. I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> you, you look around at who's the, the way that they are monitoring the streets. They've got like one person in each spot taking care of everything. These mods who they, they don't do much at all as far as like giving them muscle at, you know, at whatsoever. Um, we, and then, you know, a lot of the, the major, Bone uh, pluses, um, advantages, things that you know Boba and Mando might have, like their jetpacks. Why aren't you just up there all the time? I mean, what about the ship? Slave one, we saw what Slave done. Slave one did to the Nikto Raiders. Yeah. I mean, why Slave one wouldn't be out here just plucking off a couple of those major Scorponek droids right away? I don't. It seemed tactically, yeah, like a really poor scheme, poor decision making. From a guy who's been in all these battles We've been led to believe that this is one of the most Badass guys And he does have some moments But we saw him in some of the earlier episodes Be a little bit more When he was with the Tuscans um, You know we were finally led to believe that Oh this is someone who can really um, You know get his way out of situations he, This is someone who's very like In um, Ingenious, you know, he he can make do with what's around him. I didn't, you know, he waited a little long to get the rank, or why, you know, why wouldn't that was another thing that you knew you what you had there, but that was it just felt like there were a lot of things they could go to and they they didn't yeah. use them very much. Yeah, you know what? I I guess I 
kept thinking the show was going to be more clever than it was. And so th- this episode reveals that Boba Fett did not know that the Pikes were behind it. And I thought this whole time, I mean, I think I thought this early in the season. Uh, and again, we haven't been with Boba Fett for a few weeks, right? But er- early in the season, I thought that Boba Fett kn- was playing some sort of long game. But even that wouldn't have made sense since Fennec, we see how easily Fennec took out the pikes in this episode. And so if he was really about, you know, act, uh, enacting vengeance against the pikes, he could have done that. There wasn't. That's another I, part. Well, what, while we're on that, I want to hit on that because that that seemed very deliberate. Fennec, who is badass, like everything we've ever seen of Fennec. Is incredible. We were just talking last week about how Fennec had some interactions with Cad Bane that were incredible. And so it was almost deliberate like, we got to get her out of there because we don't want her looking so cool to take some of the shine off of a big moment for Boba. I mean, she's gone yeah. the entire time. Someone, it's like we're talking about how they don't have very much of an army, they don't have a bunch of troops, and you send off perhaps your. Most lethal assassin And she's just gone for almost The whole episode eventually she gets the job done But we literally don't see her From the time like the battle starts All the way till the very end Yeah I mean I think there It's the design Of the episode is Flawed and if I'm being if I'm being Honest the flaws of the this Episode's design weren't Too big of a problem for me the first Time I was kind of caught up in the flow of the action I agree I, it bothered I had, me I've watched it back three and like a half times Because I watched it the second time with Stephanie And so the second and third time All of the same things that I thought were cool In in the first watch through I still enjoy yeah. right? The moments the, the Grogu and Mando reunion And there are some really cool things Boba K, There are some stuff that it's like, Oh cool But the, the holes the more you watch it back again, it's like, ah, like that bothers me. That bothers me. There's a moment that feels like it's supposed to be a big moment between uh, Drash and all of a sudden this new woman from Freetown, Joe, who it's, yeah. we have n- nothing about her. We haven't heard anything. And then there's this moment between the two of them where there's, I didn't like the way that was set up. That's another thing that felt like there might have been a scene or two somewhere before mm-hmm. that we were supposed to see that was cut out. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Here, Here's my hot take. This series, my problem with this series is the same problem I had with The Rise of Skywalker. That it was plot decisions that are made for an effect, right? So J.J. Abrams, we're going to bring back Leia. We're going to bring back Palpatine. Why are we bringing back Palpatine? I don't know. We'll kind of figure that out. We're gonna introduce this. Uh, uh, we're gonna introduce Jaina. Was that her name? Jana. Anyway, we're gonna introduce uh, a counterpoint to Finn. We're gonna introduce a counterpoint to Poe. These new characters we have no relationship with. So it's like we're stuffing this final episode of the saga with a lot of plot and not much story, not much room to breathe. And this show, to its credit, did have a couple episodes to breathe, but. It almost seems as if two things. One, they shot the scene that was the teaser at the end of Mandalorian season two, where Boba Fett shoots Bib Fortuna. And then we're like, okay, so what show? What we, what's we, next? What so show what are we going to do? do? Yeah. And the other thing, or they had a painting of a Rancor and Grogu sleeping. And we're like, 
How can we do that? And it just seems that the show was designed around producing some moments that were effective and, and occasionally joyous, but n- without consideration of what the story is. Mm-hmm. And that was my issue with The Rise of Skywalker, that it it ultimately rang hollow to me because it didn't actually continue the story of The Last Jedi. I mean, it, it kind of exists in tension with it. And I don't actually think this show developed Boba Fett's character. I'm not sure. I mean, and I've got a lot of notes on this as we get to the end. I'm, I'm, you know, on one hand, I can kind of make, tell the story, what it might've been to myself. I can kind of excavate it from the plot. On the other hand, I'm not really sure he changed it all over the series as a whole, because I don't the change like, happens in the flashback. So I, I don't know. But even when he asked, like Cad Bane asks him why, and he says, oh, these, was... you know, these are my people. You know, um, I heard one one of the recaps I watched and and I, I think did sort of the best way of trying to say, yeah, you know, Boba, when he was taken in by the Tuscans, you know, he, when he was, you know, came he came out of the Sarlacc and was taken, it was like a new birthing for him. It was a completely yeah. new we, life. We you know, he had that. that. Yeah. Vision quest, you know, and that he he was one with the sand, and he was one with the waters, and the waters. Of, I, I don't. That was still like hard to. Maybe that's what it's all built oh. around, and then we don't even get another Tuscan flat at the end. I don't know. There wasn't a flashback. None of the Tuscans were still around there at all. That leads me to another big point. Like, were the Pikes even a bat? Like a big enough, bad enough bad guy that seemed. Scary enough or terrifying enough They didn't really I mean they weren't led by Cad Bane was involved with them But they didn't have backing that we know of From anything more I don't They were kind of uninteresting They they were uninteresting In part because The crime element of the show Was almost non-existent Mm -hmm. So You know I don't know if it's a Disney plus thing I don't know what it is do a show on crime, do a show on the outer rim, you know, drug trade or whatever. But but this wasn't that show. And yet it depends on us knowing something about the politics and economy of drug trade in Tatooine. Or it kind of yada yadas it in this episode. It, it, it does a in lot a of yada yadaing. You're right. It does. That's. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a sociologist or political scientist <laughs> um, that studies the war on drugs, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, <laughs> illicit drug economies are not just, cannot just be removed from a town, right? I mean, I, there was yeah. no sense of how these, you know, this show, I, I don't want to spend too much time on what I wish it could have been. But if it was going to be about the drug trade, maybe take a page from The Wire and show the different levels of sure. how what the, spice is killing our people. Because what the Clatoonians do, you know, and yeah. how they're involved. We can see how the, uh, you know, the Trandosians are involved a little bit and the Aqualish are involved and what roles they have. And, you know, give us a scene of that happening and then the meeting with Boba where we know that they're going to be at their BSing him. Right. We right. know they're going to yeah. turn on him because that was weird. It's like, OK, we don't. We don't know enough about any of these characters You know, it, it reminded me of I'm not sure if you, you've seen it or not And it's a um, MCU Marvel movie Which, you know, the the real critique of Eternals Was was just oh, that yeah, I've seen it now, oh god Yeah, you know, and it's just There were a lot of things about this That sort of reminded me of, of this show 
Like I I you wanted to be cool visually and you wanted us to get there, but you didn't make us care enough along the way mm-hmm. about yeah. a lot of a lot it, of the characters you introduced. And then boom, like the next show that or the next Marvel MCU thing that we got right after that was Hawkeye. And within like one episode, I'm just I'm all in on Kate Bishop. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh wow, they just made me totally care about this brand new character, and I didn't care about almost anyone in that other like th- two and a half hour movie because they tried to do too much. That's another note I had. It just feels like this one was again where you're trying to do too much and you didn't really get clean finishes or endings or stories to a lot of a lot of balls in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I I think there is you know if, if I take a step back. I don't think the show showed me uh, an, the evolution of a character. It, it, it outside of the, you know, his rebirth in in the Tuscan under the Tuscan sun or whatever. Um, I think there is kind of something interesting about this old bounty hunter who's trying to kind of find the right path, and you get a bit of that in the final scenes with Cad Bane, but then I don't. You know, you're only reminded that he was a killer the episode before this. So so it really requires the audience. This show really asks the audience, one, to do a lot of work to kind of kind of project what the major emotional changes for the characters mm-hmm. are. And it also asks the audience to, hey, remember all, you know, you got to remember Boba Fett's daddy issues from from the Clone Wars. Yeah. You need to remember his anger as a child like you. And I guess, I mean, who are we fooling? I guess most of us are watching all this stuff anyway. But I was so excited when I watched, I watched the first episode with my dad. And he was, he wanted to watch more. And we, he loves Westerns and I love Star Wars. And I thought, oh my God, like this is the show that I'll get to watch with my dad. Yeah. And now there's no fucking way I'm going to try to get him to watch this. No. Because he's going to be totally confused. It's what's going on. And then, especially when you get to, like, episode five, Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, yeah. What? Who's the Mandal? Who is this guy? Where's Boba Fett? Like, what have we been doing? uh, What's going I... And there are some things we're going to get into, like we're being critical and that's fine. Like I want to get all the critical stuff out of the way. There's no reason for us here to BS you, right? We're not, we're not selling you Disney plus uh, packages or anything. Like we're going to be honest because there's no reason not to. There are some things that I like, and we'll get into those as we, you know, continue through our deep dive. Do we think for sure Cad Bane is dead? Uh, You know, is it one of those? Because uh, we always, we always got to kind of ask the question, especially when it's a character they just brought in. For a couple episodes, I maybe I mean we may see him in situations where we're showing what happened before this. But do you right. think this is this is him being dead and like he's not going to be around anymore after this? Fool me once, Gino. This is a show about someone who was <laughs> plunged into the belly of a beast where right. he was going to be slowly digested. Literally, literally. so <laughs> so so of course not. I mean. I would like to think there is some finality in Star Wars, um, but Darth Maul, Emperor Palpatine, you know, the list goes on. I I liked this end for Cad Bane. I mean, Cad Bane, let's, for for those who, who are about to, to shut off the podcast because they can't take so much uh, negativity. I love Cad Bane. I, I want to be in the show that Cad Bane was in. Uh, almost every line was perfectly delivered. 
the way he moves, the way he's shot. I loved Cat. I like the look of him too, for the most yeah. part. I thought everything it's because that's sometimes what's hard to do is to make that transition from someone that you've already debuted in animation and make them into real, you know, into live action. That's not always easy. It's more seamless to me than than uh, 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 Rosario Dawson's uh, Ahsoka Tano, mm-hmm. in part because the same person is voicing Cad Bane in the Clone yeah. Wars as as in the show. Um, but yeah, I mean, is, so is he dead? I, I don't know. I probably not. I mean, are we getting another book of Boa Fett season? Um, I hope I hope he's dead. I think yeah. there's pl- there's decades of story. Or you know, at least two decades of of story that are unaccounted for in his life. Maybe he shows up in Obi Wan. Maybe he shows mm-hmm. up in Andor. Um, and and this was a fitting end for him. I mean, and maybe we eventually see more of their relationship, and arguably should have seen more of their relationship in the show in flashback. But um, I, I this is a weird thing to say. I hope he stays dead. But yeah, but this was I a hope good, he's dead. I don't think we need a boat like there's nothing what more can be gained from he, a Boba Cad Bane rematch exactly so he's not gonna have a better way to go this was the best yeah. way for him to go out yeah in, in this sense and I do think we'll see him in other stuff that's earlier on the timeline than this I I gar- yeah. I, I imagine oh that yeah he- I mean of course and that's kind of the the I mean you know again Andor is a show about someone who died in one of the movies I mean mm-hmm. so um I mean Obi-Wan is dead we're getting a show about him you know yeah. so i mean we could get a whole cad bane show <laughs> yeah sure um one or two more things that i was a little critical of and then we'll uh and then we'll start to jump in so i mean luke what the hell man you didn't even drop grogu oh. off like you just sent him off with r2 in the x-wing were you that bitter at him for not picking uh you in the school there it's like oh okay you're out adios I, that seemed a little bit i don't know Harsh, weird, strange uh, to me that just Grogu just pops up there without Luke anywhere to be found, or not even Ahsoka taking him back, you know, because she was sort of the one who maybe didn't want to train him to begin with and felt like it might not be the best. So, somebody accompanying him back more than R2. I know R2 can pull some weight, but that I mean, I was like, whoa, yeah. I, you know, I'll be honest, I, I guess I wasn't, I mean, I, I guess I immediately moved to the conclusion that. This show was so knotted up at this point that it couldn't, it, there just wasn't enough show left to deal with the implications of Luke coming back to Tatooine, um, possibly having to confront Boba in some mm-hmm. way. Although there's Boba, a rancor. Yeah, there would have been a lot. They avoided, they avoided Boba Fett seeing Luke Skywalker deliberately mm-hmm. in the end of Mando season two. And it seems like that's not a place they're going to go. I mean, it's not a place I want them to go. But then it re- it results in these kind of anticlimactic return of Grogu. I don't. I'm not talking about their meetup, uh, Grogu and Mandu's eventual meetup. But I didn't expect to go. Right? Isn't that the first scene after the title? I think so. You yeah. see the X-wing fly into Mos Espa, um, or Mos Eisley. Um, I was surprised. I thought Grogu's return would be more of in the the third act kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, um, you you because you know it's com- so we know for a lot of this it's coming. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it wasn't like we were waiting on it quite as much. Yeah. So, um, and then yeah, I guess the one other thing, and then we'll sort of get into our uh, deep dive. So, like, where you and I talked at the beginning, 
of this series where this obviously this is for us we're talking for hours about every star wars episode which is a a quote that you had a few weeks ago but we aren't the the most hardcore boba fett specific fans in the world it's not as if he's a character that you and i would obsess over and deep dive over always was fine with boba but you know he was just a, a character in in shows and stuff that i liked and you know we actually discussed how when you really look at it boba did was did very little honestly for someone who had such a big rep where do you feel now about boba Compared to where you felt maybe before And I'm kind of curious how you and I may feel Differently from some of the hardcore fans How they may feel Yeah Um, On one hand my favorite Boba Fett canonical material Is chapter 2 Of the book of Boba Fett yeah. So on, 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 in one sense it, it has made me Care about or made me more interested In the character than I ever was On another On the other hand I kind of Leave the show feeling like Boba Fett is kind of out of his league. Like yeah. I, I, I was consistently like he does not really does not really show much intelligence or strategic thinking in this show at all. Don't and, they even joking have a joking line at the end that we'll get to where he's like, maybe we're not suited for oh, this. Don't get it me started. Like, yeah, are we'll you get, kidding me? That. We went through all of this and then yeah. just for Boba to wake up from uh, a dream and be like, oh, that was just a dream, uh, and then I'm out. Like what? He's continually like, you know, I mean, do his instincts about ruling with respect win out at the end of the day? I don't think so. Uh, But, you know, we could talk about that. So it's kind of in my mind is somewhat undermined his character because he seems so clueless at the end to the kind of leader he was and the destruction he causes. I don't want to get too critical on the, you know, a referendum on action scenes and television shows and movies and blah, blah, blah. Like we'll talk about it, but I I was left with kind of a confusion over what does Boba Fett think he did? Like he seems to be uh, to lack some serious self-awareness at the end of the series. And that, that left a bad taste in my mouth that um, I don't, you know, we put a lot of faith in, in future star Wars to rehabilitate characters. um, And He'll be back. Uh, yeah, he, he has some destiny with Mando. Uh, but this show, if there is a bigger story to tell about Boba Fett, this show really held back on it. I agree. And it, you know, I didn't have all these built up ideas in my head of what I wanted from Boba. So I think in that sense, I wasn't expecting a whole, I didn't really know what to expect from this show. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, that probably didn't have me. Have heightened expectations and everyone's gonna say What because I didn't hate the show Overall I wasn't entertained by a lot of it It just it confused me It yeah. really did and And the title confused me the way it was done Like I'm wait, just like you I'm waiting for us to hear Something to come out so we can kind of Go oh okay we give it a little bit of a mulligan For for how it was put together Because it's it's more like a It's like a book of short Story it's like a cluster mm-hmm. A st- like a Star Wars cluster I think I, yeah. I saw somewhere Which is um, Really what it felt like at the end And even even the last t- Things that we see The Cobb Van post credit scene Felt sort of super anticlimactic yeah. Like we didn't get that. It doesn't really do anything for us Moving forward I think we all sort of Probably felt that was still the case even though He didn't show up 
And and the last thing we see isn't even Boba. It's Mando and Grogu flying yeah, off. Yeah. Like that's yeah. literally the last thing we see. So very strange throughout. But we will get into some of the uh, things that we liked as we jump into our deep dive of episode seven of the book of Boba Fett in the name of honor. As we get the previously on and we open up with Fennec and Boba looking over the Burned remains of the sanctuary The place that Garza Fwip Owned the bar sort of a Casino and Then Mando Shows up and he just returned From Freetown where he went to Ask for help from Cobb Vanth And all of them so Boba And Fennec and Mando Are just sort of talking about you know, what What's next here They know that they're in some serious Trouble because they don't have bodies Mando tries to let them know here that Cobb Vanth is raising a garrison for us. I mean, Mando's very confident for a guy that said, you know, I'll do what I can. So he, yeah. I mean, that was, he was banking everything in that. Well, something must have happened off screen because he, he mentions this deal with Cobb Vanth about shutting down the spice trade. Which yeah. He didn't see that at, at all. Six, right? That's another thing was like, that could have very easily just been one little thing. Like a scene just a little like that And that you're right that was something that he mentioned that He's been holding off the spice trade Single handedly I told him we could shut it Down Fennec jumps in And says oh that's not a that's Not free that's most of Jabba The Hutt's business that's you know Fennec sort of pushy A little bit hey there's a lot of credits that can Be made but Boba agrees Said no they said This is best for the town this is best for All of them in the long run most Espa can become a prosperous city under our protection. Spice is killing the people. Let Marshall Vanth and the people of Moss Pelgo um, know. And they yeah. uh, he, he lets them know, what, you know, they changed that, to the Freetown. Go so ahead. I want to, you know, what is it? Uh, I want to rule a family. What was his saying earlier? Like in the season, he wants to head a crime family, which by its nature is involved in crime. <laughs> And now he's saying Spice is killing our people. So the the very activity that he is, I mean, he even says in episode four, I've got no problem with credits. And now it, it's very clear from this episode that that's because his house is involved in this drug trade. So when when did this change happen? Or, and this is kind of the, you know, what's his angle? That this, this scene really threw me for a loop. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I was glad it kind of, I guess... You know, it was implied. I mean, at, at, up to this point, um, but then it, it it makes the 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 turn that Boba's make uh, uh, his kind of switch here really odd to me. I I, mean, I don't know. I guess because it's the right thing to do, and we should just as as viewers who have some sense of morality just be like, okay, we'll take it. But there was a better way to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And. Basically, they just <laughs> oh, we're, we're really counting on them. If they don't show up, we're doomed. Our skill is no match for the syndicate numbers. We must buy time until they arrive. We'll lock down at the palace. We don't realize that right behind them, it's actually the mods, uh, Drash and Scad, and they they want to stay right there. Yeah. They say, if you want to abandon Mos Espa and hide in your fortress, go. We're staying. The people who live here. Need our protection Which again is hilarious because We haven't Why do they care so much haven't they been Ostracized 
Like they didn't we weren't we led to believe mm. that they were like total outcasts around? Right. And I don't. I now don't all of a sudden they're like, this is our town. You know, go Rams. You know, I mean, I don't know, like, what? Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I can't even remember this idea of them as being outcasts if this was my own headcanon. I mean, it just, uh, because we just don't know. We don't really spend any meaningful time with them. Uh, and there's some moments in this episode where, again, Drash, is that her name? Mentions how she grew up nearby. And, you know, if we had gotten a sense of their life on the streets of Mos Espa. It really goes back, you know, if the the for all the confusion with the Mando and Grogu-centric episodes, a, a better episode three may have gone a long way toward making this a more cohesive mm-hmm. season. If you go yeah. remember back, that was when I was, you know, I, off the high of, of episode two, we both were like, what's going on with episode three? There were all these weird kind of... Uh, uh, plot mechanics and it didn't and in move the end, it, yeah episode three was setting up episode seven in a way um because episode and, four ended up going back into the whole, the whole boba and fennec meeting right um, and then five and six were basically mando episodes without boba around so it was i know we yeah. just never got these group flushed out enough the the scenes that they try to have later on they don't hit home we don't care enough about them, I mean, they would feel a little bit better, like you said. Give us a couple scenes of what they were like when they were on the streets, what they were being treated like. They didn't have money; they just wanted water. I don't know. Make us feel for them. I, yeah. If I'm so, I need to be fair. I, I critique a lot of you know of the whole. I mean, I, I'm being very critical of the show, and then on the other hand, I say I love the prequels. But I also spent a good deal <laughs> of my you know teenage years figuring out like. This 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 discussion we're having about the spice trade on Tatooine, it's the same with the blockade of Naboo, where it's like, what exactly is going on? And are people really dying? And why are they in camps? And you never really see the effects of the blockade of Naboo in, in episode one. I'm talking about the Phantom Menace, not episode one of the show. And so it's it's somewhat in keeping with Star Wars that's never very much concerned with day-to-day life or how, you know... Uh, politics work at a granular level, but that's not really an excuse, right? I mean, when the focus of the show is on the liberation or the protection of this town, um, we need to know more about what's at stake uh, for the different characters and how they fit in this landscape. And it's really on us as the viewer to kind of make our own headcanon because it's not enough material in the show itself. So they decide to stay. Boba says we're staying. Um, he agrees. So they decide to uh, to bunker down there in uh, the sort of ruins of the sanctuary. As we flash to Cad Bane meeting with the Pike Syndicate. Hey, if we were playing the drinking game, every time there's a meeting, here's another <laughs> one for you, Matt. Take a uh, shot, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, it's it's the first scene in the entire series that's like. From the villain's point of view, we talked it about is. this last week that they, right. their motivations and their knowledge has been kept in the dark, and it felt like know, this it, did a lot though too. It felt like actually this scene actually felt impactful in that we got to understand a little bit. Yeah, like it, we heard from the Pikes, we heard them telling him what they did. We finally got it out there. Oh yeah, we did 
you know, set up the Nikto Raiders. It was us yeah. all along. We didn't want to have to pay very much. We were BSing them. We killed the Tusk. You know, we'd so it, this wasn't a long scene, but it did it did plenty here as Yeah, yeah. It has like, to remind the audience of things that happened three episodes ago. Yeah, no, you're right. It does. It's yeah. it's at the very least just like a reminder. Hey, yeah. remember remember where we were? Um that slimy Mokshaiz says that uh he has to respond in some way. And so it's a meeting here with Mokshaiz with the Pike leader and with Cad Bane, as Mokshaiz wants this to be over as soon as possible. He doesn't want any he's the mayor of the city. He wants Boba out, but he doesn't want his city to be ruined. Yeah. He doesn't want there to be things blown up all over the place because this is where he is the mayor of. Um, he mentions the Tuscans, and that's when the Pike leader says they no longer exist. We destroyed them ourselves. Cad asks if Boba knows that. And the Pike leader says, No, he has no idea. We left evidence to encourage that it was the Nikto Speedbiter. So he thinks it was them. He already got revenge on them As far as he, he's concerned It's it's a done deal And Cad Bane is actually Whoa I didn't realize the Pikes were so ruthless mm-hmm. The leader just says Hey pragmatic they were charging us We have to protect our margins here All, yeah. all about the business All about the grind And Mok Shaiz just He wants this to, to be done as quick as possible As uh, he says No more explosives I didn't sign off on barming uh, On the barming of uh Garza's sanctuary I agree to surgical strikes Not open warfare And yeah that line's been crossed They sort of finish up their meeting As uh, the Pike says The the Fet got He lets them know hey they're taking refuge In the ruins of the sanctuary It's going to take extreme measures to remove them As Cad says he has an idea How to draw Boba Fett out And we get the title Chapter 7 in the name of honor What'd you think of this meeting? I... You know, it's kind of that data dump scene where the villain, you know, lays out their entire plan. Um, it it needed to happen for the episode to work. I think, again, there's a version of the show where the discovery of this truth is a little more, um, you know, we're not. For, I mean, this scene is crucial for the entire way that the <laughs> Cad Bane and, and Boba Fett encounter plays out because Cad Bane does not know this until mm-hmm. now. Right. Um, I. You know, it just didn't. It could have been more impactful. Even it's just the way it was set up. It should have been a bigger deal. Even yeah, I, I, you know, it was interesting when, when Cad Bane says, "I, I know how to draw him out." It goes to the title, right? And then the next scene is is X Wing arriving, and so my head was, "Hold, wait, how, does Cad Bane know about Grogu?" Or that's how, are they? Yeah, gonna, you know, is was the idea? I know how to draw him out. Going to be Grogu, and so. You know, I, I couldn't quite figure out how Cad Bane would know that. I mean, you know, how is he going to know all this? But then I thought, OK, so maybe that's the point. I mean, so so somehow Boba Fett's fate and Grogu's fate are going to be intertwined in some way. And so that's where I thought the episode was going at this point. Um, I'm was my my guess was totally wrong, <laughs> as we've already discussed. They just decide uh, to make the left turn here. <laughs> yeah. With uh, with bringing. Yeah. Grogu in I mean it makes sense for Mando But it just it like it didn't Necessarily feel like it was needed In a book of Boba Fett Show because as you said They don't really end up having any interactions But the X-Wing Arrives at uh, Peli Mottos and Pel- She's great though yeah. she's really funny She thinks she's in trouble 
It's an X-Wing What's an X-Wing yeah. doing here And you know her interactions with her droids Are fantastic you know how she just Trash talks them and then she, You know she'll respond Like like uh, Han would With Chewie you know just kind of respond Like they say say something back and we don't know what they're saying But it just it's great um, Stay in here lock it up Hide that get rid of that go you move it over there You heard me and then she walks out Hello officer I just filed for my new Republic certification just as you were landing. What a coincidence, if you ask me. <laughs> so, and then yeah, Grogu. She, she's always in, like, she's always present and in, she understands her character and she's always, like, lighting it up. And and even, so, you know, I, I think people might vary on how much they are endeared to Pelimoto or how they, you know, whether they like the Mayor Domo character or not. But those two characters, or the mayor's assistant, what's his name? Mayor Domo? I can't remember. Major Domo? Yeah. Major Domo, yeah. Those two characters are, like, kind of at the same wavelength. Um, You know, the show has kind of a range of tones that sort of work together sometimes. I don't know. Um, But the Major Domo and Pelimoto, like, kind of, they've got this energy that keeps kind of propelling their scenes. I mean, they're often talking to themselves, right? Uh, yeah, they are still engaged. So and now I want to see the two of them. Like when they, when they link up at the end, it's just, do you ship, do you ship it? Yeah. That's <laughs> apparently they have uh, a lot of stuff. When you look kind of through their history together, they were in comedy. Uh, they, they, they've worked oh, together the actors, a the lot. Actors. The, the two actors in real life. Sorry. Yeah. The one that plays Pelimoto and then yeah. the one that plays uh, the major Domo. So that, that'll be uh, interesting to see. Cause I guess in strangers with candy and then in, in comedy standup stuff. So they know each other really well. They have a good chemistry. You could just kind of tell right away. And I, I could see the major Domo like, I'm pretty sure he'll be back. Oh yeah. He's kind of like um he reminds me and there's always the character like this, you know, he is he's the one who's going to be the assistant to whomever. He doesn't care who. Yeah. He, he doesn't really have morals. He just wants to stay alive, make a few bucks, kind of weasel his way out of situations. He's very much the um in Coneheads, you know, the 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 Police officer characters that I think David Spade pay, Plays one of them who's like You know the officer and then he gets they get taken Up you know and and, and beamed up And now he wants to be the assistant for the uh, The leaders of that planet like they don't care Who they're who they're the the Yes man yeah. for they're just a yes man And yeah I, uh, Yeah they you know I mean They they don't do much exploring The world of, of Tatooine but They do have this pretty effective Stand in character mm-hmm. for bureaucracy Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, having dealt with uh, town bureaucracy before a, in different settings, it really rang true. So, so we get to see the little green guy pop his head up, Grogu, and she says, "Look, Pelimato sees and says, look who it is! Wow, did they teach you how to fly an X-wing already?" And the the droids are kind of chirping, and then R two starts chirping. He's there. R two asks her basically, "Where is the Mandalorian?" She said he's not here And then She uh, she Says oh I don't know he's on a job In, in Mos Espa and she says Oh hey you know she gives Grogu a hug And it sounds like R2 says Grogu And she she goes Grogu that's a terrible name yeah. I'm not going to call you that <laughs> it's just, it's just, just How a lot of us felt when we uh, When we were like what it's not going to be Baby Yoda 
Are yeah. you kidding me? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so they were having some fun with that. And um, R2 obviously is in a rush and he, you know, he knows that there's important business at hand, but she says, no, I got to feed the baby. You know, gives him some tongue worms. So we get a cool little cute scene of, uh, of our buddy Grogu uh, feasting on some of these dung worms here is, uh, yeah, I mean, her, like you said, with her scenes, a lot of them are just her talking to herself because she's just responding to the droids and they're not saying anything or she's responding to R2 here. So she definitely has a good, she's really funny, you know, a good little uh, comedic sense anytime she's on screen. Yeah. I, so I, I agree with, with all of that. It's a fun scene. Uh, Grogu's adorable. I'm going to be that guy and ask this question, though. How is there was there something in the previous episode that would have allowed Luke to know that that Mando was going back to Tatooine? I mean, I, you know, I, I know. No, I know. I know. Those take, are like the again, liberties, little holes, like or even would... like I said, do they know that there's something important happening? Do they know like what is? Why is R2 in a rush? Yeah. Right? I don't, know. I, I don't yeah. you know, those are... I, maybe... Yeah, I'm trying, you know, I guess Luke... I, I don't know why I'm even going through this, but, yeah, you know, I, I guess Luke could have, could retrieve, you know, his memories in a way. I, I don't know, maybe there's a way that Grogu communicates with him, or maybe Mando said something to Ahsoka, I'd have to look back, but maybe I'm thinking too hard about this. Yeah. I, you know, how, how does... <laughs> How does he know where to go? Because no, he he's not going to where Mando is. He's going to the the previous landing pad we've spent time in. But there's no way, you know. How does anyway? I don't know. I yeah. don't know. They don't. No, they don't pay yeah. us enough to figure that one out. You're right. You're right. We uh, <laughs> we have some questions to ask about that as we get back to Boba, Mando, and Fennec in the. Ruins of uh, of the sanctuary there And Fennec sort of sets the scene They're waiting for reinforcements with Cobb Vanth from Freetown Their forces are quietly patrolling the streets So we see everybody patrolling Pike Syndicate has not arrived in numbers But we'll see them before they do see us The truce that you negotiated with the other families Will ensure that they remain neutral Again, this is like what you're saying there, They're just reminding no, us there, There's no safer place than the crypt if you, if you Right, remember. yeah <laughs> They're trying to remind us some things again from just a few weeks ago because it's been a while, and uh, we we oh yeah that we remember. And the Gamorians are posted in the Clutunian territory at the starport. The uh, Black Hersantin is in the Trandoshan territory, and the Drash and Scad are with the other mods. They're in the Workers District and the Aqualish Quarter. So we see all of them set up in their posts, you know, patrolling. Around the town So they've got everything covered Or yeah, so, they, so, so they The Gamorians are in, are in set A <laughs> Chrysanthemum goes to set B They they brought out all the sets from Yeah the series. Uh, uh, I actually So I'm, I'm being you know Dismissive This part I kind of got into this part of the episode Where the landscape of all the crime families was actually starting to make sense. Yes. To me. It was alluded to before, like in episode two or three, or can't remember. Um, I kind of liked the energy of the Gamorians are stationed here, you know, and th- that montage with the voiceover. It's only later that when you reflect on the plan, it starts to fall apart. But I agree. The, 
But in the first viewing, I definitely was kind of like, all right, I'm on board with this. You may, like, it makes it, you're looking at it and it can kind of make sense. It's just a plan that when you dig at, you're like, oh, they really had two people in this area trying to, to take, you know, if, if anything were to happen there, you're in some serious trouble here with, it, you know, the, trying to defend uh, yourself against hundreds. And yeah, that ends with, up with so few people. The only plan that really does make sense is going back to Jabba's palace. Yes. Which is off the table from the first. And it's so scene. crazy because like you're saying, if that's the plan. Especially when these droids come out And the droids seem to be Very much dead set on Getting to Boba Not really killing the rest of the people In the town even as much They're like they seem pretty set of that's what yeah. their plan is. Yeah. It would have been if you go back to the palace, I think you lure them there. Like you're saying, you keep the people in the city a little safer. Yeah. And yeah, not just you not the also best. get the powerful, like you can still have your Rancor King Kong scenes mm-hmm. and you could still have your destruction, but instead of the town, which is undermining Destroying the town which undermines Boba's position You are destroying the symbol Of crime In a way which you actually could have told You know, you arguably could have told The story that they state Say they are telling More effectively at, Bo- at Jabba's palace um, Anyway I know I don't I'm, 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 I couldn't write a better I, I should say I couldn't write a better TV show well, than this. And that's it's, it's so much Monday it's, morning quarterback. It's, it's easy to but. be, and I never try either, right? I would never try. I can go back afterwards and say, okay, maybe that could have been done dead, but I wouldn't try to even do it myself because I know it's difficult. And we, it's just another one of those things where we're we get the whole setup, and yeah, we're in great shape. So as soon as anything happens, we're gonna know. And then all of a sudden here comes the droid to let Boba know that there's somebody here to see him. Almost like I thought you said nobody could sneak up on us. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's that's one of those like that's just like in the last episode where Mando says to Ahsoka, but you said you weren't going to train him, which is basically. Yeah, a, a, kind of a shortcut, right? In a script mm-hmm. where there's an inconsistency. So if the character Recognizes the inconsistency that it's this, not really It's a little bit to, as long as they mention it yeah. Right you kind of feel a little bit better that they've addressed it You're right this is I come from a wrestling fandom too That's all we need one line Just give give us someone's yeah. motivations in one line And we'll buy in and move along That's all I need So um, Boba has his first little uh, face-to-face with Cad Bane mm-hmm. Boba walks out He says I thought I smelled something and initially, he actually thinks Cad Bane has showed up to help him. Yeah, he's uh, if you're looking I mean, for a job because you're late. Boba's instincts have been razor sharp this whole yeah. series. So of course he thinks Cad Bane's there to help him. Cad says, "No, I'm here to negotiate on behalf of the Pike Syndicate." Boba scoffs him off. I don't negotiate with gutless murderers. And what does Cad say? If that's not the quack duck calling the stifling slimy, which is something similar to what Boba actually said in Mando season two right. to the the Mandalorian that was played by Sasha Banks, uh, right. Bo Katan's sort of sidekick. Um, so it's a the line got flipped back at him here. He tells Cad to clear out. Tell your bosses we know they're outnumbered. But Cad Bane says he, I wouldn't be counting on the people of free time anytime soon. I paid Marshall Vanth a visit, and you should have never left him without his armor before. And 
Boba doesn't know this So this is like uh oh This is what we were depending on We were going to sit here and wait for a little while And then we were going to get some people showing up to help us And now they're not showing up And it's weird because You know Cad Bane is obviously I'm not a great Person but I think it's one of those things Where um, Boba just trusts him immediately It's like oh I guess he's not lying to me Even though this guy could blatantly be Lying or manipulating right. or whatever Like he just, I just that never even dawns on Boba For a moment yeah. he just Immediately takes the information from Cad To be true which At the at the time being it was sure, it's he, Very much uh, you're talking about The Tuscan massacre or or about The, the Freetown the Freetowns Yeah oh, okay. just like just not yeah, because Boba doesn't know. He doesn't. He he thinks they are expecting the Freetown people yeah. here, and he just sort of trusts him. Okay, you know, he killed Cobb Vance. So I guess it's one of those things where Boba and Cat have probably had this like, hey, we're we're you know hired guns and stuff, but the guy, you know, he doesn't lie. He'll kill you, but he doesn't tell a lie. You know, it's like yeah. it's like one of those where you hear people like, my word is my bond. So Cad and Boba, they've got quite a history, and. We see Mando and Fennec kind of pop out behind Boba. They're ready. They've got his, you know, they, they've got his back. But Cad also has back shooters. He says, "Hey, don't get any ideas. I've got backup myself. Let the spice move through Mos Espa, and this can all be avoided." Boba says, "No, I'm only going to negotiate with the head of the Pike Syndicate." As Cad kind of gives him a little jab and says, "You mean the one that massacred your Tuscan family and blamed it on a speed bike gang?" You know it's true Search your feelings you know. Yeah. So Boba kind of gets You can see him getting emotional Fennec comes in and sort of stops him Hey, this is not the time you pick when mm-hmm. We fight on our terms Not theirs We need to adjust, you'll have your moment So this was good from Fennec Because Boba was about to go at him Boba, we, can see, we see later That Cat is a very, very Tough opponent And if Boba would have not been in the right mindset he could have been easily killed by by Cad in a in a duel in a standoff. So Finnick helps him out here, and uh, we got a cool. I mean, we got a cool standoff with Boba yeah. and with Cad. This was a moment that I I enjoyed. This was a cool. We keep talking about every time Cad Bane's on, you just feel Western. He is that Western. The standoffs, the the way the vibe of everything they did. I. For as much as we critiqued a lot of the this this episode and and some of the this show overall, I thought they did a really good job with him, just like you did. He he was something that I don't have too many complaints about. Yeah, no, I I, I you know I, there there's also that the the feeling of shared history between these two characters. Um, maybe it's more so in their second standoff, but I I that added a lot to the episode. For me, and I don't know if it would read as confused, right? We, we, for example, we, you know, episode two was it where we had, we saw Luke's friends <laughs> in, you know, there's certain things that doesn't, that do not need to be explained to an audience. And I think there's shorthand here that we know they have a relationship and we don't need to know the specifics. And I think it still works. But, but recalling that, you know, Cad Bane was something of a mentor to Boba Fett and knew him as a child really adds to this sense of like, now we're, you know, gosh, it's been 30 years or whatever. Look at, look how old you've become kind of, you know, uh, uh, feeling and you're going soft in your old age. We all do. Um, I think shows, I mean, Star Wars always was 
good at giving the audience a sense of this larger history beyond what you were seeing. And so I think the their relationship here, whereas I said before, like maybe there should have been some Cad Bane and Boba flashbacks, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually like the sense of of understated shared history between mm-hmm. these characters. Yeah, sometimes a little some nods are fine, and just enough in in some of the context clues they drop are are sort of good enough. And I thought that was yeah, I thought this was one that that wasn't it didn't feel nearly as sort of incomplete or unfinished as maybe some of the other stories or or settings that we w- would get. It, and, it's interesting because there, I mean, a lot of uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but a lot of the Cad Bane Boba stuff have to do with his past. And his his life as a killer, which wasn't really I mean, it's it's all subtext or pretext to the show. And I guess maybe it's safe to assume that the audience brings that to the show, that they they remember what who Boba Fett was, the notice integrations Boba Fett from Empire Strikes Back. But it felt like a different thrust than what the show you know the 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 focus of the show had been previously but maybe maybe they work together i don't know but um i guess i i you know it kind of speaks to that sense of the show being kind of pulled in different directions and the cad bane scenes pull boba back to that flashback of the boy watching his father leave which never you know, it was not the start of a longer flashback that we ever ever got. It was all we got about Boba and his father. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's okay to be understated sometimes. Um, I guess we can we can do the interpretation. But so uh, yeah, Boba says the negotiations are terminated. Cad says you're going soft in your old age, and Boba says we all do. Yeah. And as Cad Bane walks off, that was basically like the signal. Okay, we're gonna give them one shot. If Boba agrees, then we could just keep moving the spice through. Boba says no, then we go through with the plan, which is, hey, let everybody know we're gonna turn on them now. You know, this is this is the plan that they had sort of laid out. As you get the major domo kind of chiming in, oh, that was an impressive impressive display of restraint, exemplary stratagem. If I may be so bold as to offer some additional counsel, Boba actually asks. I wonder how much they'd pay for the Twi'lek, you know. Um, so he ends up kind of quickly uh, shutting up. But they get radioed from Drash that something weird's happening. The people are sort of, there's a weird vibe, there's a weird energy. And all of a sudden, the locals turn on them and attack. So the deal that they had made that we saw when they were all sitting down at the tables, that was all BS. The treaty that the locals had made with Boba was a lie, and so now we we end up seeing the you know the the trap that was laid. We get it's tries, a trap. It's a trap. It's a tra- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I should have. I gotta leave the voices to you. No, that was. I wouldn't thank you. I wouldn't even have gone there. But I'm glad you did. That was the easiest one in the world. As uh. The ra- yeah, he radios to Black Crescent and he tries to let him know, Santo, Santo, but the mods are cornered. Our friends, the Gamorians, they just get backed off a cliff and just adios. The, that was uh, Black- brutal. That, brutal. That's one of the images that stuck with me most. I know. This episode was seeing those, t- like when they take that wide shot of the cliff. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
you know, that's the price of loyalty to Boba Fett. I mean, that's just Garza Fwip, the Gamorians, uh, a large portion of the town of Mos Espa. It's hard not to think about all the uh, the costs that, uh, you know, the 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 deaths that that are sort of on Boba in, in this show. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't seem to think about it too much but no. but i think about it a bit and uh you know fennec realizes that they can't really overcome their advantage so the plan now is to try to send fennec to where the pike syndicate operates from so that she she can go uh see what's going on with the leaders she can you know handle business if need be major domo lets him know um. Yeah. the The Desert Survey Office lets him know exactly where they where they are. So this is a guy that definitely he's always got a little more information than he leads on. And when you prod him for it and you threaten him a little, he's gonna give it up. He he will give it up, no doubt. So Fennec's off. She flies off. Uh, actually, rides off, and she actually radios over to the mods. They're sort of cornered. In um in a real compromising position, and Fennec is able to quickly, in just moments, come in and just boom, 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 boom. She takes care of um the situation for them, and they actually thank her. Uh, Drash thanks her. Fennec kind of laughs. Manners, I like that. So I mean, really quickly, she saves them and. You know, takes out a group of I don't know, ten or twelve of the uh, of these locals who were uh, who had turned on the mods. Yeah, she's, I mean, I guess we could talk at the end if she's the MVP of the battle or Grogu, um, but she doesn't get enough credit. She she has not only been kind of a consistent, consistently a badass through the show, she's also, her instincts have been right most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she warned Boba about all, like all of this. Yeah. Every time. I mean, even yeah. from what she did a, a moment ago with just calm down. We'll get right. him in a minute. Don't go after Cad right now. If he goes after him emotionally right there, boom, he's probably he's probably dead. But he waits, yeah. and later in the episode, he's able to have a moment where it is one-on-one, and Boba can actually use one of his new strengths, some of the training that he learned from the Tuscans. So she is a standout. I mean, MVP, she is the leading scorer. She's the point guard that's setting everything up. She's yeah. like the starting pitcher for a lot of this. Like she's got, she's eating the innings. She's just, she pulls a ton of weight. And, yeah, uh, she should try to get out of her contract, though. I think. Yeah, she, <laughs> I agree. She can do more somewhere else, maybe. You know. Yeah. She can really be. Uh, she can really be a star anywhere she goes. Yeah. And the, the situation now is not great for Mando and Boba. Um, Mando can see the Pikes closing in on them. Uh, they do not see Cad Bane there And Boba From what he's heard he thinks everybody's Gone he said all three gotras of Moses But turned on us <laughs> Mando and it's funny with these two guys Because you know th- these are hired hitmen For the most part that, that's like They're bounty hunters for, that's been their job They're just guns for hire So f- we've learned That both of these guys have good hearts now And they have a moral code But that wasn't the case when we st- Kind of started with either of them we never we never knew and what their moral code was now we sort of get i thought this was kind of a funny little back and forth where they had 
where Mando's like, yeah, it was the smart move. I would have done, you know, I would have done this. And Bob was like, yeah, it was. Uh, I suppose, suppose you're going to be leaving here. I, not to beat a dead horse, or I guess beat a dead bantha, as we say on this show, but I this exchange was, again, one of those... So Boba Fett is not that bright. I mean, it was it, it kind of it dumb. kind of is a we maybe it's kind. You know, it feels it's like that, right? Thought it was kind of played for laughs. I think it kind of does work with the. There's a bit of self awareness there, but um, but yeah, it just underscored for me that their their opponents are steps ahead of them. Mm-hmm. He's never really been a step ahead of no. his opponents, right? When not he a... thinks he's negotiated a truce, I mean people saw that falling apart from miles away. Um, So yeah, this is, you know, one, one piece of this larger problem with Boba Fett's actions and their impact on the town of Mos Espa, which just just haunts this episode. You're right. The the point of me laughing at this and thinking it was played for laughs is this very, it has to be a self-aware thing, but then it's it's disingenuous to what they're trying to tell us at the show that Boba is this great leader, and it, so it's. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I chuckled at it all, every time. Um, I guess you're going to be heading out. No, I'm not. He tells him, "Well, you should." And he says, <laughs> he, "Manto goes. It's against the creed. I gave you my word. I'm with you until we both fall." And as so, Boba. So Mando is telling Boba, "Look." I'm going to stay here with you. I'm not going to abandon you. And Boba's resp- line to him is, you really buy into all that bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this 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 scene is kind of where I, I you know, my, my ears perked up. I'm like, okay, now we're going to get to the heart of why Mando's in this show. And it might be laying the foundation for a future plot development where Boba joins the Mandalorian cause. But the finale doesn't really pay this off in a meaningful way in the sense that, you know, he dismisses the creed and my you know, anticipation, my hope was that he was going to see what the bond between Mando and Grogu, you know, he was going to reflect on that or he was going to have his uh, some sort of moment of coming to faith. Maybe not the creed in a strict sense, but seeing the value of Mando's way, even an acknowledgement, but that there's never a follow up on this discussion about their commitments and philosophies. Um, No, and uh, we we get some cool, I mean, we'll get them fighting side by side and doing some cool stuff in just a moment. Uh, But this was, yeah, Mando says, okay, we got two choices. We wait until they get into position and launch a, and launch a siege on their terms, or we rush out and catch them unaware, and then we can escape to your ship at the palace. Boba again says, "I can't abandon Mos Espa. These people are counting on me." Okay, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe they are. So this this is what's hilarious again right now. What people is he talking about? The ones that just turned on him? Like there are? I mean, he's able to distinguish which that there are some people there that didn't turn on him. Because didn't didn't we just most of the people turned on him or a lot of the locals did? This is another thing that I was like when I watched it back multiple times. Why is he? Who is he still? He just said he thinks Black Kersantan and the mods and all of his people are done. I don't even. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I think it's a set. I, again, it's a contradiction. I mean, yeah, the citizens of Mos Espa, but I, you know, there's nothing to suggest. So the the idea of respect, he earns the respect of the mods in demonstrating fairness with water allocation. He shows mercy to Kersantin, um, who you know he he spares the Gamorian's life, etc. I, I so I get the, why he he earns the trust and loyalty of those around him but there's nothing in my mind that would sh- earn the town's trust right he never has a show of of power of restrained power um earlier in the ep- in the season right you know if he had been the one like cod cob vant to like just destroy or kick the spice in the dust and we saw the people of Mos Espa think like, wow, this guy's this is different than the the Bib Fortuna and, Bo- and uh, Job of the Huts. But my, if I lived in Mos Espa, I would just see Boba Fett as just the latest, the, the next you know, criminal to move figurehead. in. And, you know, life will will make do with our you know our livelihoods selling you, you know fruit as we always have. But um, it, it is a you know we've seen so many stories in you know this day and age that are about you know my people i need to protect my tribe like it's almost like the show is just counting on us to be like eh, we could have explained this to you but you know i mean he's the hero um he he has the moral high ground like yeah of course yeah, you, they're you know. taking a lot of shortcuts he, yeah, you know a lot of short i think it's a lot of shortcuts that we're assuming that the people will uh, follow Boba Fett because he is the hero of the show, but there's nothing that is especially heroic of it in his actions mm-hmm. at a you know publicly, I guess. So, so, so as the they're kind of figuring out what they're going to do, the major Tomo chimes in. He says, uh, "If I may alter uh, offer an alternative, you may not know this about me. And in fact, how could you? Except perhaps that what what th- this would be like a best line of the episode. This is probably my favorite line of the whole episode. You know, if I was doing you know like a a little monologue or something for a comedy or you know for like an acting class, this would be the type of thing I would want to do because it's yeah. fun. Like he just gets the sort of yeah. Um, you know. You may not know this about me. In fact, how could you? Except perhaps what vestiges remain of my accent. But I was educated on Coruscant. Not that makes me better in any way. <laughs> that oh my god, that was so great. I it was great because it's funny, but it also kind of helps explain. Like it's you know he clearly isn't competent enough, or you he wasn't the top of his class. He couldn't get a position like in the, you know, New Republic government. So he go, you know, he's not on some like Fulbright exchange program where he's going to Tatooine. Like he clearly wants to be the big fish in a small pond. I think it just added it was such a small detail that actually illuminates the way the character it seems to to thrive off control and being the mayor's. Uh, the mayor's kind of voice and stand-in in the or those are first two episodes or first three episodes. 
I I thought it, it was awesome. It was a great moment. So funny. Uh, Boba says, get to it. And the major domo continues on. I attended finishing academy. My parents were not wealthy by any means. I specialized in civic, civic council negotiations. Now, if you would feel confident empowering me to negotiate on your behalf, I'm fairly certain we would be granted passage off-world with, at worst, some theatrical, symbolic, groveling gestures and an exchange of funds. <laughs> and Bubba's like, okay, give me your tablet. Here. I'll write out my statement and what I'm willing to pay. And oh, the major domo's like, nice, I'm gonna make it out alive. Like, I, I don't, I just don't want to get caught up in. I'm not a fighter here. I can't get caught up in the middle of this battle. And he says, so he says, um. I I shall go as your emissary And I have no compunction whatsoever Genuflecting or groveling If need be Which would save you from any potential bruising of ego So to speak So (laughs) Boba writes down his, uh, His statement And he hands it to the major domo Who then goes out To address the the pikes and we actually see one of the pikes there without a helmet We don't see very many of them Most of them that are out oh, around Have right, their helmets on yeah. But the one who uh, who the major domo uh, Addresses said, uh, He says salutations I'm unarmed but for this tablet Bearing terms of surrender I wish to present them to whomever Spokesperson is empowered And uh, and then He starts giving his spiel And it's so great because at the beginning He's like complimenting them Oh, you know, he he says, someday I hope to see the fabled obsidian cliffs of Obadiah with my own eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's complimenting their homeland and where they're from. And then he starts to read, I, Boba Fett, speaking as the Daimo of Tatooine territories, formerly held by Jabba the Hutt, do present the following offer. And then he reads farther and realizes what it is. He stops. He guys tries to tell the Pikes, I mean, what what are you guys willing to offer? And and. And then he is asked to read Boba's offer Nothing Nothing yeah. uh, You leave this planet and your spice trade If you refer, if you refuse these terms The sands of Tatooine Will once again flourish With uh, flowered fields Fertilized with the bodies of your dead <laughs> His words <laughs> His words Yeah, He's funny man the, Like his, He does a great job with the, the moments that he's on He's another like scene stealer when he's been on there Yeah I, there's also something about I, you know, I was just thinking right now, Boba's speech that kind of alludes back to the whole thing about Tatooine being a water planet, like this idea of of the the ecosystem of Tatooine being explored. Like obviously, it's a taunt, but there was that those exchanges in Episode Three again, where where they. I kept thinking they were setting something up, right? You know about the water, the history. I thought water was going to be. It's interesting. Like the early episodes make made me think water was going to be the crucial resource, Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. it really ends up being about the spice trade. Um, I can't remember to what degree spice was important in the first two episodes. Um, Not much. You do, but there was all this stuff about water, and so you know, this is kind of an allusion to that. And it's it was I liked I you know I saw people kind of poking fun about or read and heard like oh you know how does he compose this so quickly like suddenly he's a poet I mean I think it worked for comedic effect quite well mm-hmm. but it also made me think about that other you know aspect of the the history of Tatooine that was mentioned it's mentioned by the Tuscans I believe 
uh, in the, uh, in one of the uh, in episode two. It's, it's mentioned by the guy, by the uh, the water, Peele, the yeah. watermonger. Mm-hmm. Um, was interesting, you know. Nothing really becomes of that in this in this episode, and and you know what remains to be seen for everything we're saying is if Mando and Boba Fett are really one in the same show, like, is it possible that things that are being, there's a lot of groundwork being laid in this series for things that will happen later that, you know, are, are far off or kind of outside of our mind. I don't think that's an excuse for it, but it still kind of confounds me why the, the, the choices are, are odd to say the least. So a lot of this was done to set up a diversion to give Boba and Mando a few seconds to kind of come out the back door and use their jetpack so that way they could come from above. And as soon as I saw this and it was awesome, the two of them are up in the sky. Yeah. Uh, they come up from behind using their jetpacks. I'm just like, why don't they stay up there? <laughs> they're, yeah. They're moving targets, they're impossible to hit. They're just plucking people out from above from below them and then the moment they get back down they lose the high ground. We've lo- we know about high ground in Star Wars. Yeah. We know about the advantages of high ground and as soon as they're back down they're having trouble because the pikes have people kind of placed on the the rooftops all over and they just have so many more numbers that they're able to send in these waves and waves of of people. Boba's using his knee missiles, Mando gets hit and they're they're cornered. It want, they're in some serious trouble. But at the moment when it looks like they're at their most desperate uh, need for help, we get it. The people of Freetown, people led by Weequay, show Save up. Save the so day. Shout out to uh, the Battle of the Bastards here, right? It's like Freetown's coming in, the Knights of the Vale to, uh, coming to uh, Peter, please, here to save, uh, to save the day. That's overselling the people. They're in like one armored speeder. I know. We got like 20 of them at the max. Happy to have them. Quite a gesture, but. um, Definitely not the the necessary artillery to to uh, to really even compete with what the pikes are going to be putting forth as far as their numbers. And then what they've got as far as these droids that we're going to see in just a moment. Mods and Boba. Mando, Black K, and some of the people from Freetown are all sort of behind this truck. They're using it as their base. I mean, we get this moment where Black Chrysanthemum is just getting shot at from all over. And um, there's even a little back and forth where you can tell that the mods and the people of Freetown don't like each other. One of them sort of makes a racist comment towards the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's another shorthand moment that kind of alludes to something that, that would have been really better if we saw more exploring, right? I mean, yep. be- because we, we know as an, I, you know, in a way, I don't know if the, you know, in a way, the negative response of the audience, overwhelmingly negative response to the mods, you know, maybe has the effect where we are then projecting our, negative response onto the people most us but like they clearly look different they they kind of they're they're misfits um but and i i i would have i'm happy there was some acknowledgement that these are people from different walks of life that don't see eye to eye because 
they have to acknowledge that because there's no other basis for you know it's a very contingent alliance situational alliance but it still felt like if we had invested more time in these city rats <laughs> that so much more emotional and dramatic potential of this show would have been unlocked now everybody's kind of teamed up they've got a little base of this uh this tank and that's when we uh yeah actually boba fett goes out and saves black Kersantin. he he would have been a goner. I mean, he's getting shot at from all over the place, but Boba saves him, kind of brings him back, and he tells him, you know, thanks. I thought you were gone. I'll owe you a nice soak in the back to tank when all this is done. Yeah. So um, Boba's got uh, one of his uh, former uh, gone, compatriots back. He's here. gone soft in old age. What can he we- has. Yes, we all do. <laughs> we all do. As there's a moment where, as Matt had just referenced, it's not as if, the people from Freetown have tons of numbers. So why would all the pikes start to drop back now? It, it, it wasn't like they were gaining some crazy advantage. The reason why the pikes started to drop back was because they didn't want to get hit by some of the uh, the flying shots from these crazy droids. Yep, and annihilator droids, I believe. Yep. And they come out with basically like a shield around them that Cannot be penetrated Boba uses a missile Looks like he blows one of these things up for a minute Nope Yeah. Nothing And Bobo and Boba and Mando uh, Bobo, <laughs> Boba and Mando are trying to uh, They're trying to hold the line a little bit And, and let the others run for cover And we do see uh, Some pretty nifty moves from Boba When he's using the jetpack to kind of fly And then kind of get down yeah, on the ground Yeah, kind of a, a slide Yeah, yeah yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. And Mando's trying to use the dark saber but he can't get through. It's at this moment when Boba I think he realizes like I got one more card to play here. I got a rancor. Yeah. And he doesn't say it yet but he just tells Mando, "Hey, can you can you just hold this for a minute?" Mando, being the good Mando that he is, says, "Yeah, whatever you need, man. Go ahead. I got it." And so Boba, you know, goes off he tells Mando to protect the others And Mando's doing his best Like he's trying to divert attention The blaster is not penetrating the shields Whatsoever And so he's he's in trouble What did you think about the, the time And the moment for Boba to kind of realize He needed to go get the Rancor I don't So to be honest I think the first time I saw it What did he says Does, does Mando say you're out of friends Or we're out of friends or What mm-hmm. is the line that prompts Boba. Boba says we need reinforcements And Mando says from where you've run out of friends So I thought This was going to be him Going off to the Tuscans, Which Me too. in retrospect doesn't make too much sense I mean because if his tribe's Wiped out another tribe Why would they be you know Predisposed to help him if they don't know him I don't know but that's what I thought He was flying off to I, I guess I had Forgotten about the Rancor Um one Maybe must wonder why he didn't bring out the Rancor to begin with. I, I always know. thought the Rancor was about send like I always imagined there was going to be this moment where like the Rancor is what kind of sends this message of dominance to the people of Mos Espa and to the mm-hmm. crime families. And I guess arguably it it sends a message. <laughs> um, but I wasn't thinking that's where he was headed off to, to be honest. Um, I thought it was going to 
I, I was still in, you know, hoping that this show was going to do something more meaningful and substantial with the Tuscans. And, um, you know, it, yeah, in my opinion, I, it really doesn't in the end. I I, I mean, it's kind of, in fact, kind of cheap the way they're just you know, used as emotional motivators. Um, and then out. I, I, I kept waiting for one of them to come back for there to be a moment. Just, yeah, we didn't. We didn't get that And so Mando actually runs in To Peli Mato uh, And she's on what like a rickshaw here It sort of looks like what yep. Anakin and, uh, and I Padme think it's very similar to what mm-hmm. They you know the droid is very similar If not the same to the rickshaw uh, Droid from Episode 2 Attack of the Clones And Mando and Peli Kind of bump into each other is she tells him I got a surprise for you And he says what And he you know She's kind of helping him get away He's sort of even though he could fly faster He's like on this rickshaw and She's yeah. like can this thing go any faster As we kind of flash back over You know so we're getting some cutbacks We're getting Mando He's with Peli on this rickshaw now They're trying to basically just Distract these big droids Just kind of Yeah to, you know, keep them away from killing the people while Boba has gone to do whatever Boba's gonna do. We see the people from Freetown with the with the mods. They're not in great shape. They keep getting forced back and back and back. And this is where we get that little moment that, like you said, I mean, we it was so it was in such in passing. Drash says, "I grew up from here." I grew up a wop hop from here. If we fall back any further, we're going to be cornered with no cover. So we're going to die. No, we're going to fight. And they realize, which I guess, what have they been doing since? You know, <laughs> I don't know. But they, you know, they they sort of plan things out to try to go from above and shoot down, which yeah. is a fine plan. And Joe ends up giving Drash a bigger weapon. So they have a little moment here where they try to set it up. But ultimately this doesn't even really lead to anything. No, I, I kept thinking, you know, I, I kept thinking there was going to be this payoff where the mods know something about the terrain that the pikes couldn't possibly know. Um because ultimately, you know, it's just the rain core is 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 fundamental for destroying I mean I guess Grogu finishes off no, he doesn't even finish finish off one of the uh, annihilator droids. No, but the point is, no, you're right. Like this doesn't, you know, they keep they they're engaged in battle, but they're not contributing to the victory in the way that I thought the show was going to show. Like the kind of David and Goliath, right? That there's something, some kind of spark of ingenuity or street Luke, knowledge that the mods have. Luke with the Death Star. You know right. what I mean? Luke like the Death Star, right? Like, yeah, like she even mentioned the Womp Rat shot. You know what I mean? Like we're a wa- yeah. like she. It, this was something that like, oh, you got I could I can hit that. I've yeah. hit. so I, that's what was so weird. It's like they set this moment up like it was gonna be a big moment, like it was gonna lead to yeah. them taking yeah. one of these things out, and then it ended up them just being on top together, and then the the, the rancor just kind of comes by. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. I I I was confounded by it. You know, as it uh, as it developed, but I'd kind of forgotten about this 
whole sequence until I was rewatching where, you know, there's all this point being made about which gun they're going to take and where they're, are they in position? And, you know, um, I, I guess it's realistic, you know, cause these Scorpion, uh, annihilator droids, they've established that they're pretty difficult to destroy. So I guess it's realistic. They, they didn't have some, mm-hmm. some kind of m- magic trick, you know, up their sleeves, but, it's just another episode of where I kept expecting this series to be more clever than it ultimately was. Yeah. Um, that there was, there was some twist or moment or insight into these characters and their lives in Tatooine that just ultimately never came. So Pelly, we go back to Pelly and Mando and she says, you know, look who's here. And she, Grogu is just like hiding right underneath and he's like covered by this little blanket. And he just leaps up into Mando's arms. I mean, this was pretty adorable. Like this moment was yeah. very precious. You yeah. could hear it. They embrace. It's a real touching moment. Grogu's eyes get really big and wide. And Mando, I mean, I, we definitely praised him plenty at the end of uh, Mandalorian season two, but. Pedro Pascal does just a fantastic job with expressing emotion for someone who we don't ever see his face or anything. Like you can just hear it in him where it's oh, hey little guy, what are you doing here? Yeah. Oh like like it's it's good. Like it was a really it was a good moment. Yeah. No, I liked I really liked so you know, we could debate, well, we could wonder why was the reunion in this show? I think in in two years time, three years, it'll be obvious why. Right. Um, I don't think it makes it a a very effective decision for the series as a whole. But that's beside the point. So being given that we were going to have this reunion in the show, I kind of like the kind of haphazard quality of it, that it's while they're on this rickshaw droid. And I do, too. It's he it's when he least expected it wasn't Mm -hmm. we already had the setup of that, like you know, forest environment reunion and that glimpse from afar. We had the kind of quiet, the the setup for a quiet kind of emotionally drawn out reunion. And instead you, you can't prepare yourself. Like he's, we're unprepared for it. Uh, Mando's unprepared for it. I kind of just liked how it was, you know, they were flying by the edge of their seats in this uh, reunion that they waited I mean, I guess <laughs> there, that's an interesting canon question. How much time has passed since right? How long? Uh, the end of, of Mando season two. But nonetheless, um, this is, you know, Mando and Grogu work, right? And they work in this show. I don't know if they work for the show, but they work in this show. And their scenes, you know, we are automatically emotionally invested in them in the way that we we rarely if ever are with virtually all the other leads of the show and mm-hmm. certainly with the peripheral characters that's a, that's a thousand percent we are so much more into the the you know the emotional part with these two than with a lot of the stuff that we we feel like they maybe didn't get deep enough into with boba to make us care enough so i'm happy to see you too i didn't know where I, when i'd see you again it's okay i missed you too buddy but we're in a bit of a bind right now. Be careful. Keep your head down. You stay hidden till the fight's over. And then he realizes the the shirt, you know, the armor that Grogu's wearing, the armor, and he's like, "Oh, hey, it's my this is shirt you're wearing." He's like, "So 
He's so happy. Yeah. You can hear it. And Pelly chimes in. Hey, save your tender moment. We got a Scorponek yeah. droid chasing yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. So she gives you a little uh she lightens the moment quickly. Mando asks, like, what's what's he doing here? And she just says the force works in mysterious ways. Yeah. Which is yeah. funny. I like how she, you know, I don't know, you may have said this line before, but when she's like, Hey Mando, look who's here, you know, like she has this this kind of it's not like she breaks the fourth wall, but she often is almost feels often like she's speaking to the audience too. Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, you know, yes. Oh, you're you're right. I'm not going to use your name, Grogu. Like she's almost voicing. She's, she's almost this kind of commentary on the audience's relationship to to Grogu. Right. Yeah. I hate that name. Yeah. You're right. Like the things that she's saying are like what we're the voice of the audience or the voice of the voice to the audience. It's a very, Yeah, good way of putting it. So they all get knocked off the rig shot. It sort of explodes, and Mando flies to catch Grogu, <laughs> which is a, another yeah. cool. Oh, yeah, that play that that landed differently after the Super Bowl yesterday. So. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is uh, Pelly falls. Um, she flies, and, and one of her teeth falls out, and so we've now got. Mando, Peli, and Grogu basically face to face with this Scorponek droid as Mando is trying to fire, but to no impact. And in the distance, we hear a roar. Yeah. And we see the. This was a. Um, there were a couple parts with the Rancor that I got pretty excited for. And because this was so Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. you know, where you just yeah. see like the claws just. You know, at the very beginning, and and this was very, you know, you mentioned King Kong, Godzilla, which you have yeah. the, you know, all of these plays into just big monster movies and big monster movie tropes, and so I thought that was really cool when his claws just kind of appear, and then the way they shot him, and we see Boba aboard as the Rancor just knocks one of these Scorpionic. Droids over and that kind of gets it to short circuit a little bit it it sort of uh, it, the the base and the the shield aren't as strong anymore so Mando is able to use the dark saber to penetrate the shield um he gets thrown mm-hmm. and the scorpionic droid is moving towards Mando but Grogu is able to use the force to they bust a piece of the the Scorponek droid apart, and that weakens it enough for the Rancor to come in and just finish the job. It was good teamwork here, great team effort. You know, Krogu. Uh, first, it was the Rancor kind of knocking it off its side. Mando penetrates and is able to, you know, get inside, and then Grogu tears it down a little bit, and the Rancor finishes the job. So one of these Scorponek droids is done for. Yeah, it was interesting how. On the rickshaw, right? They they lose control of the rickshaw because Grogu like force calls some some element of the the droid, right? Like, yeah, just yeah. minutes before, and so I, you know, it, I guess I don't know how to read that. Was it that Grogu is kind of testing his skills? Is it just he's impulsive and always trying to take ship parts? Right? We've seen that in in mm-hmm. the Mandalorian. Yeah, you're right. Is he just um, trying to get their lever? Is he trying to pull right. the little ball, little lever that he, you know? Yeah, is it the sh- the showrunners, the, you know, the filmmakers wanting to remind us of his force powers? 
because it's interesting that you have these he essentially does to the uh annihilator droid what he does to the rickshaw droid so it's mm-hmm. almost like oh like he he knows he can do that it was kind of in, you know I, I think they could have just shown him crippling the machine i i thought he was gonna smash i thought we were gonna see some cr- incredible like luke skywalker level like display of power but, i did too um and that might have been weird. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure it would have been cool in the moment. But it is kind of cool. You know, it's essentially he's just doing what he did to the rickshaw droid out of not just out of curiosity in this case, because his his surrogate father's life is in danger. But it was kind of an interesting way they paired those scenes. And you're I, right. I, you know, it's does it, it's almost like is, does yeah. he know what he's doing or is it just a kid right. being a kid yeah. like pulling I mean, on the flashy Luke toy? Said, Luke says it's really just a question of like awakening these, you know, Luke's line about Grogu having these abilities that are dormant is, you know, played off in, in the context of chapter six. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, I'm not teaching him. I'm just he's just remembering. But it's also to the audience saying or providing an in-universe explanation for why we're going to increasingly see Grogu do amazing things without training, which was, you know, a kind of bullshit issue mm-hmm. people had with Ray, like, you know, and J.J. Abrams, in a sense, some people read the whole Palpatine heritage as a way of explaining her incredible power. I think the show is, it has given us some explanation, I don't think we needed it, of why Grogu is so uh powerful right and we're seeing we're starting to see his powers grow with not only you know the this the annihilator droid but of course with the rancor shortly so on the other side of town we've got drash and joe and they're up top of uh on top of a couple of the buildings they're trying to get a better shot down on the other scorpionic droid and as they're you know plotting exactly they're gonna do here comes the rancor and so they don't even really get their big moment. Um, the Rancor heads over to the other Scorpionic droid, but the droid kind of gets the better of the Rancor a little bit early on. Gets a couple shots in at the on the chest here, uh, but pretty quickly the Rancor just destroys this one. Just yeah. rips this one to shreds, pulls it apart, and now the people really do have an advantage. The people from Freetown, Weakway, they. Sort of head after the pikes And then we get the funny Interaction between Pelly and the major Domo Pelly kind of finds the major Domo hiding As she says nice head tails Come on get behind me pretty face Pelly's got you covered so These two are now linked up together uh, For the, the rest of this episode Together which is great you know Two of the probably the funniest characters In, in the show are now together so we could have a lot of uh, a lot of laughs with these two and I'm sure as we've seen with Pelly she's a fun character that they can have pop up anytime at Tatooine you know anyone can show up and need something work done on a on a ship or something and she can have yeah. a fun a fun little back and forth cuz that's a real easy um a real easy tie in for her to have with with anyone yeah, so I I hadn't thought about that role she plays what's the character in Bond is it Q who provides him with all his yeah weaponry? Like yeah it's kind of She's that, I mean, she's that, she's that in a lot of other things, mm-hmm. but, um. Because how, even how she, you know, hey, I can get you what you need from the Jawas, or, you know, she's, right. she's kind of got her ear to the ground a little bit, she knows what's going on there, but she's very, she's, she's unimportant 
in the grand scheme of Tatooine, right? She's like, but she's got enough to be a, a character that's cool, but nobody really is like, who's Peli Motto, right? You know, she's not someone yeah. that's that's gonna get noticed. Um, I, I like, yeah, I like how they can use her. So and and then like we said with the major domo, I mean, he can pop up with anyone and always be just wanting to be their uh, you know, their their first, you know, their first mate wanting to be the uh, the hand of the king, you know, any any time um in any place. I'm sorry, when you said first mate in the con and, and so close to discussions of Pelimoto, I was like, where are you going with <laughs> and Pelimoto? Like part of me you know, I, I think it's interesting this show wasn't it the episode five where Pelimoto made I'm a I'm a hometown girl or like made a point how she grew up on Tatooine or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then in this episode, we learn, you know, about uh, the major domos kind of, uh, you know, university upbringing or whatever. And in Coruscant. So I don't know, maybe she will be getting off world. Yeah, uh, they're, they're, you're, you're right. <laughs> That's that was well played there. That was very well played. <laughs> <laughs> so um we now get the rancor i mean he's just the rancor just eating people and just destroying just i mean pretty devastating to some and boba's still aboard and boba rides him on over but here comes cad bane and he just kind of quickly just like sprays fire in the face of the this, rancor, and the rancor's like, "I'm out." This very much felt like the kind of the animation in like a video game where you're transitioning from like one level or stage to like another like the in guy. Between I obviously point? don't play yeah. a lot of video games. I'm not. I'm yeah, not no, I know what you mean. Well. But there was something very much like, okay, exit stage left, rancor. Um, we, I don't know. I mean, we they kind of foregrounded that these rancor you know they don't they don't like to fight they they are kind of peaceful creatures and in, in, inherently but there was definitely a, okay shoe it's time for the cad bane and and uh, boba fett face off part two and here we go so cad bane arrives boba's on the rancor cad sprays that fire knocks him off and we get the boba and cad standoff and this is where cad just asks hey <laughs> What's your angle? <laughs> I've known you a long time. I, I don't get it. it. Boba says, "This is my city. These are my people. I will not abandon them." And then Cad says, "Like the Tuscans." <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like you know your friends know that, or I don't know, friends is is loose. The, the people who know you best know the things that can really piss you off or that are going to really get to you, right? Sometimes it's your your partner or someone in your family when you're in a fight that they'll say the dirtiest things that know it's really going to hurt. Like, this is one of those, like, the Tuscans, where were you for them? Boba says, don't toy with me. I'm not a little boy any longer, and you are an old man. But Cad says, I'm still faster than you. <laughs> and he, he was. Bo- Boba says, I do have armor, though. <laughs> Let's find out. Yeah, quick draw. Cad wins the draw, nails Boba. Boba's on the ground, and Cad walks over, and he's been keeping a good eye on him because he says now it's about the time you jet off to your Bacta tank. Huh? And yeah. So that- he knows that Boba's kind of been softer. He's even mentioned, you know, you've been getting older, you've been getting softer. So how does he, he know about the Bacta tank? It seems to me just from this one, I won't give as much. It just feels like with the pikes 
They, they, the they seem to know a lot yeah, about Boba Fett. Yeah. They had they had the people around. So even when we saw that meeting earlier, they knew where Boba and Mando and Fennec were. They were right. stuck in ruins. So it yeah. it feels I'll, I'll at least play that one out and say that uh, they've got people on the inside I'll, around. Yeah, I'll take you know that, sure. it, yeah. that uh, that's probably one of my least complaints of of some of the continuity yeah. and stuff in yeah. in this episode. Um, but. Uh, you know, Cad's got the advantage there, and he walks over. Boba's laying down on the on the ground. Boba actually tries to spray fire first, and Cad kind of dodges it. And then he hits Boba with another shot, and he tells him, "You gave it a shot. You tried to go straight, but you've got your father's blood pumping through your veins. You're a Love killer, yeah. right? That that was a good one. Yeah. You're you're a killer, and this isn't the first time I beat you out on a job. There's no shame in it." Boba's lying on the floor. Cad walks over and removes his helmet, and Cad gets ready to go for the kill. Consider this my final lesson. Look out for yourself. Anything else is weakness. Now, I did like this moment, the final I, moment for Boba. I really, I really like this moment. It's, and I thought you would too when I saw it, because it, it made it made sense. At least it, this was a payoff for a sort of payoff for something they had set up. In in episode, so it's a payoff for episode two in 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 a lot of ways. It's it, it's just I'm so I have such mixed feelings because of how they ultimately treat the Tuscan storyline, and the wave of the gaffy stick here isn't enough to erase the the I think kind of careless or cheap tricks they do with very much agree off the the Tuscans, but it is. To me, it was the stand, like the most powerful moment of the episode because it it showed and didn't tell. And I'll mm-hmm. I'll come back to this in my final thoughts that so much of of the book of Boba Fett is telling us things, and this is showing how there is something about Boba Fett that Cad Bane doesn't understand. Right? Yep. He he has had this experience in the desert that he is not. You know, he's not just a killer. I mean, he does use a gaffy stick to kill him, but he's also drawing on this mm-hmm. aspect of his history and that is is more than Django, right? Django gave him his blood, but he became part of this family with the Tuscans. And it's it's a powerful image and it's it's you you know, they don't no pun intended, beat us over the head with it really. Like it kind of speaks for itself. Um and there was just not enough of that in this show overall, but it, this was excellent visual and kinetic storytelling. And I wish the impact of it had deeper resident resonance. Yeah. Um, this, it, it just makes sense on the most simple sense, right? If you're scouting someone, it, you know, like I, I always try to relate things back to athletics and stuff. Yeah. If, if I'm showing someone some of my moves if there's a move that they don't know I have, they're not yeah. going to be able to prepare for that or to yeah. defend it. This is not something that Cad Bane thought was in the Boba Fett repertoire. And it was something that, you know, I had forgot. I mean, maybe because we had been away from Boba Fett for so right. long. But when I watch the scene again, you see the gaffy. You see he's armed with it. Mm-hmm. Like it's they're not hiding it from you. You just forget because he hasn't been using it. Exactly. And and so that it worked you know, the audience is tricked in the way that Cad Bane is too. And, and I really like, I, I, I like that's, that's where the show 
is being more clever than the audience, right? It, mm -hmm. It's um, it that wasn't a cheap trick for me, even though the the overall handling of the massacre and presentation of the massacre, etc., does feel off. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this show, you know, no. Although I have a lot of problems with what it ultimately amounted to, they you know. They gave us episode two, and it, that episode mattered to me. It's one of my favorite Star Wars television episodes, period. And um, that, you know, is is directly tied. We see him construct this Gavi sick. We see what it means for him to, you know, how he, the trials he went through to be able to construct this weapon and, and all the kind of relationships that it holds. Um, it's it's our it's probably the best. I mean, this this is one of the best moments of the series to me, and it's just I agree. It's it's buried right. It's a, it, in in such a kind of convoluted plot setup. This is kind of a moment that arises from a character, right? That doesn't, mm -hmm. even though it is designed and plotted, it it feels true to the moment and true to the character. Boba knocks Cad to the floor, stabs him in the chest. As uh, Cad says, I knew you were a killer At the end And Boba wins the battle We asked the question at the beginning Is Cad dead? I, w I hope so, I hope this is Where he's he ends But we do see more of him In in the the Prior years that we didn't get You know, In, in those years where we know that he's alive I want to see him and Boba Running into each other, interacting Him and Obi-Wan and, and him and uh, You know, some of these other characters Mm -hmm. So hopefully we see more of that The Rancor is going nuts though And uh, and the people are shooting at it The mods, the people of Freetown They don't know what to do And it's not as if the Rancor knows which side he's fighting It's like he doesn't know which people he was going after Boba was the yeah. one that was trying to control him And so this is a young baby Rancor That we don't think is very well trained one and two, even if it was, how the hell would it know who's it who's it supposed to go after and who's it not? Um of course Mando, you know, our guy Mando, he lets everybody know, stop shooting. You're scaring it. Put the blasters down. And Mando looks around, Boba's nowhere to be found, and this Rancor's on the loose. He knows he needs to step up. He hands Grogu to Pelimato and he says, Hey, hold on to him, keep him safe. Um and, and Mando goes to try to ride the Rancor. Yep. <laughs> it's, he, uh, he hops uh, on and it does not work very well, Matt. Yep. Preface to the inevitable Mando and Mythosaur confrontation. All right, this is where uh where I definitely think that you know this uh, although I, I wish the Mando Grogu Rancor stuff was more about what it means for Boba Fett, both Mando's Interaction with the Rancor and Grogu's are kind of really important character moments for them, right? That will are either in in Mando's case, I I predict. I mean, I I would put I'd put some significant money on it. Like Mando, you did really well. Right. If you if you go back and listen to some of the props that Matt put up before uh, oh, before Episode Seven, I you would you would have connected on a, at least a couple of them. Yeah, you, no, you, definitely. I mean, some money. were sure, yeah. some were sure bets, but I yeah. mean, I 
the the flyway in the cockpit. I mean, that was an easy one, I guess. But yeah, the anyway. riding the rancor is neat. I you I think you may have given out five, and like three of them were hits. So you know yeah. what? Like, yeah, it's not bad, bad at all. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I you heard it. I mean, I'm sure you've read it elsewhere, but you're gonna hear it here again. Like Mando Mythosaur, and then the Grogu Rancor is a kind of bookend to. Grogu's uh, uh, the Mudhorn from episode two of season one of the Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. And so we see Grogu's growth in this, you know, interaction with a quote monster. And we see Mando's, you know, deficiencies at riding a beast. I guess we saw that also. Which I like too, right? I didn't want to see him jump up. We we had heard it's going to be, it's difficult. You can't, you're going to take training. We didn't see Boba's training, but we were at least believed that it was done off screen. I didn't want Mando to just jump on there and be able to just, you know, easily ride this rancor. Right. Yeah. And, and no, I think, so this, this again, it makes, you know, makes sense for Mando. Uh, we'll talk about Grogu, the Grogu scene. It Boba Fett, like, it would have been awesome to see him witness some of this. Or, you know, let's talk about Grogu. And then yes, I'll, I'll no, you're right. Thoughts. It would have because because yeah. as Mando is struggling, trying to do his best with the Rancor, it's just the Rancor just tosses him around, and it's right up in the face of Peli and the Major Domo, and so they're kind of. Pelly sort of looks around trying to protect Grogu And Grogu's gone He walked right out in front of the Rancor Right up to him And he Is able to use the force to just Put the Rancor to sleep Yeah It was a, it was a pretty powerful moment It was he, 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 you know, he walks right out He looks at it you know, We all kind of know what's going to happen You can sense it But yeah. this is kind of what Luke was getting at This dude Grogu is super powerful He's capable of incredible things He just doesn't really know it, It's hard for him to unlock it The times that we've seen him be able to do them Are when Mando is in trouble Yeah, And, and usually even one point in here where like The Rancor's got Mando's head in between his teeth Yeah It's like, yeah. Gr- like biting down on the helmet Yeah So b- big moment for Grogu And so he puts the He puts the Rancor to sleep and then he just walks over and just plops down next yeah. to him and and curls up like like your dog would lay yeah. right next to you when you're gonna lay down. And that was that that image is pretty it, adorable. Yeah, I mean, I I my you know I, I said earlier like is this image like one of the fa- like, does this image kind of spawn the show in a way? Right? Is is this show about they how start do we here get and work this, backwards? Yeah. You how know? do we get to this image? Because it's such a powerful one. It's it's beautiful. I would say. Right. Um, this scene could have been. I mean, it was powerful in its own terms, but I wish we had seen if if Boba had come in to the scene as Grogu is doing his thing, even a a look of recognition of respect. For Grogu or something that sparks some awakening or knowledge that there's something bigger here about their relationship. This green, this little green guy and Mando that maybe Mando's faith and belief and devotion can do incredible things or lead to incredible things. That to me would have gone I think the whole tone of our discussion today of my different. my tone would have been totally different because there would have still been on these problems, but it would have then, okay, 
I get mm-hmm. there's a character moment here. This this person who, yes, he's he learned through the Tuscus about a team, right? About oh, sorry, being a part of a tribe. And now from Grogu and Mando, he's learning about this bigger that there might be a bigger commitment to, you know, others beyond what he is he is experienced in Mos Espa. Because I don't think he's staying in Mos Espa. I think, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the first few episodes of Mando season three. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's staying in Mos Espa. And so I agree. if if he is if he leaves Mos Espa and we get no kind of explanation for the character leaving Mos Espa uh, Mos Espa, that cheapens the show even more, right? Because his whole point was about running the city and protecting the city. And so this is I such know. a missed opportunity where you could have brought the kind of kind of emotionally linked Boba Boba's journey and or whatever if we can call it a journey and and Grogu's journey in this book explain why Grogu, you know, kind of explain why Grogu is in the book of Boba Fett, but no, I mean, I don't know. Boba's, is he recovering from his, is, you know, nursing his wounds, I guess. I mean, ah, yeah, it was, that was, it, 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 again, there are a lot of things that it's not like this was a bad show. It's not like I hated the time I had watching this. It just, there's so many things that we feel like, and I, I honestly, even in the more Star Wars projects that there have been recently, and on Disney Plus stuff, and then a lot of the Marvel MCU stuff, I've I've had some critiques, but for the most part, they do a pretty good job of always kind of tying it forward or kind of the next. Everything made sense. There were just a lot of holes as we kind of d- deep dived this episode. A lot of things that felt like, you know, maybe that was like a C minus, and and just sort of, hey, let's get it done and get to the next point. Like get we're, get to where we got to get next instead right. of. Making it the best possible way to get there. It it's not so so it's it's so clear now that all these shows are they're going full Marvel like Book of Boba Fett is part of mm-hmm. the Mandalorian. Absolutely, you have to watch Book of Boba Fett to understand the Mandalorian. Okay, like that's a choice. Fine, but that doesn't mean that a any season of a show has any good season of a show has an arc, right? Any good season of a show, no matter what, you know, what new characters are introduced or new locations, it has its own story and can stand to some degree on its own. And Boba Fett, I'm not really sure what what it means on its own terms. Everything to me seems like it's in service of something that came before or something that is yet to come. Absolutely. And not, you know, never his mind on where he was, (laughs) what he was doing. Right. Like, that, like, listen to Yoda. <laughs> Come on. So, uh, Grogs is exhausted from all that force using. He curls up. Telly even jokes. I guess there's not going to be a barbecue because she loves to just cook up whatever uh, of the big beasts or any meat that she can get her hands on. We've even was seen that, her before. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't get that. I, even on the they, rewatch, I was like, wait, what is that a reference to? I think the crate dragon right. that they barbecued up. And then we've we've right. seen Pelly kind of barbecuing stuff off the, the engine fumes. Oh, like just right. kind of like okay. in her in her place. So I think they were just kind of joking about how that's what that's what they would happen. Uh, the Rancor is is okay for now. The Okay, so we, we check back in with the Pike leader. 
and Mokshais. Oh yeah. And the syndicate forces have been pulled back from Mos Espa. They should be arriving here in Mos Eisley so that we we may disembark. And the one of the Clatoonians is just kind of pissed off. He said, "You can't just cut and run. We lost soldiers too." And the Pike said, "We had a deal. Our deal was that Tatooine was going to be a hospitable place to do business." Mokshais is trying to. You know, hey, it is. This is my place. The Pike leader, in just the most simple way possible, says, "Half of my men were either shot or eaten by a rancor." Is that what you call hospitable? Yeah, that that kind of made me chuckle a bit. Yeah, I, yeah. And as they're, you know, these the villains are all sort of like, ah, shit, our our plan didn't work. Our evil plan didn't work. Fennec just plucks them off, like yeah. one at a time. She brutally like hangs Mokshais. Yeah. Like uh, grabs him by the neck and and pulls him up. And they're about four or five in the room, and she just kills them all with ease. And then, boop, she's off. Yeah, was it weird? It was a, you know, you already brought up how she's essentially, you know, jettisoned from the plot like twenty minutes into the episode. The assassination scene is also in the the way that the show is. This episode is plotted. It's not actually very instrumental i mean you know it's it it it's the final nail agree. in the pike coffin but it's almost like a coda right yeah. i mean the, the it's fa- like after arguably after cad bane dies certainly after the rancor falls asleep like it feels you know the the feeling i mean i, I had totally forgotten about fennec at this point <sighs> completely and, agree you know you certainly could have they could have just run the pikes could have run with their tails between their legs um, I mean, it was a cool, it was a cool scene, right? I, um, it's like, hey, it, we just wanted to remind how, you, right. she is pretty badass, right? You know, yeah. we had her off screen for a while because we didn't want her to like rain on Boba's parade. These were supposed to be Boba's moments. We didn't want yeah. to make him lesser. And uh, oh, but she is back. Yeah. And just again, just kind of weird pacing altogether. This was cool. There were some stuff, a lot of the like stuff with the Rancor, the moment with Grogu, the a lot like some really high highs. And yeah. we then finish up. We get back to Boba and Fennec patrolling the streets. All is well. I mean, we're getting this like Renaissance fair muse the theme. Yeah. Of, like this really upbeat version of the theme. It's just like really like you're at the Renaissance fair. It's very Game of Thronesy-ish, even like. Yeah. And and they're just kind of joking. Like at this point now, the town and the people. All seem to respect Boba. He's walking by and waving to everybody. They're, the kids run up and they bring him some fruits. They they bring him some melons. Um, you know he's he's kind of sore, and as he has to lift his arm up to wave, he kind of makes a joke to uh to Fennec. Oh, does it have to be the right arm? And she kind of jokes back, "It's better than shooting." Why, well, you know? He says, "Why must everyone bow at me?" And she says, "It's better than shooting." He says, "These are those are my only two choices." They're just kind of joke. It's yeah, just jokey. It, and then the line that we talked about. We are. <laughs> he says, "You know, we are not suited for this." No shit. Like really, it took you seven episodes, and we could have figured that. Like. I've already, you know, I've already said how the the ending rings hollow to me because he has destroyed, like he destroyed the town, right? Like the Pikes, the Pikes wanted a, a a pleasant environment to do business. I'm not justifying the Pikes, but it wasn't really in their interest to 
create terror. I mean, they did. Okay, I let me back up. They blew up right. They they blew up Garza Fuip's, uh sanctuary, but you know, I, I don't. We don't know the casualty count, but I just don't understand as a viewer, as someone who has been with Boba Fett on this odd adventure, why people are bowing to him, other than to you know, it completely rings hollow to me. Me right? too. What what is I don't. I, they're thankful he stood. I don't know. Like, I mean, he got I, rid of the pikes, but he killed. Like you said, the devastation here was a lot more than when Boba before Boba came in. The, Why the, would you like him if you're someone in this town and and you've seen? Like, I don't. You kept hitting on it. We didn't get to see what life was like for these people before. So we don't know if there was any contrast. Why did, are were they really just looking for someone to come in and clean things up? Hey, we have our kids on the streets here. There's yeah. drugs all over. We can't even go out and get. I mean, we didn't get any of that. We like you said, we didn't need this. It didn't need to be episodes long, but give us a little bit of the wire. Like, show us what some of these situations are like. And I, I don't understand why at the end everyone's just. Oh, now we all respect him. Everybody loves him, and the like. It's like the president kissing babies. Yeah, um, I'm. You know, I think part. So let let me let me be fair. I mean, this is a you know, the the new you know sheriff in town like you know drives out the bandits. Maybe we don't we don't maybe we don't need some psychological or emotional exploration of that. Like it's kind of clear what's happening here, mm-hmm. right? And we can fill in the gaps as as viewers familiar with stories like this. The the problem is in 2022, right? We now have had a decade of big tentpole blockbuster films that interrogate the destruction of cities. So like you've got like there's kind of was a backlash to right. So Man of Steel, yeah. Part of the Batman versus Superman plot is about you know from Bruce Wayne's point of view, Superman destroys Gotham, right, or something mm-hmm. like that. I yep, yeah. And then like how much Avengers I mean, Avengers have a whole Sokovia, movies, right? the Sokovia Accord, like literally right. entire movies are based around this whole like idea. And so like we are now trained to question this idea about who what is a hero and uh, who who are heroes for and so it it's this scene doesn't play right it, i just don't think it works in the kind of era of blockbuster marvel storytelling that we're in right and that i agree it's like we took a couple steps backwards right. this would have been fine 20 years ago yeah i don't think we would have like like thought too much about no it no but right. that that is one of the problems with the level of television that we've got in the last 15 years because that's you know that's that's hurt a lot of the movies is that tv used to be really basic and simple and when you wanted incredible stuff you were going to the movies and now with hbo and showtime and all the streaming services and netflix and orange is the new black is one of the shows that i think of that kind of was a was really big when you kind of read into what it did for you know branching out and streaming services and stuff and it just we've raised the bar mm-hmm. so high for like what a you know what the what the level of what we want in these real premium shows and I thought they yeah, again we kept saying cut corners yada 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 there were just things that they 
they bounced around and I mean everything was so pleasant at the end here it's the scad and drash and the the mods are all together with boba with fennec with black chrysanthemum they're just laughing and they're joking oh you know he he throws boba throws black chrysanthemum in one of the melons and the mods joke so the wookie gets a melon and we don't hey black chrysanthemum can't chrysanthemum you want to share you know they're just kind of laughing yeah. and that's and that's it i mean they move that was the last we get from being in tatooine with boba but the last actual Port of this episode before we get into the credits Goes back to Mando and Grogu Which I think can't be a, a coincidence You know just letting us know again That this is a Mandalorian story Almost yeah. It's like this is where we're going next uh, That's and, true It is it's like this is where we're going next That's a good way to, to think about it Other than yeah. I mean Kind of what you were saying with They steal the show but Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kind of like what you were saying with the Marvel stuff right We do see at the end of movies We'll get the, co- the post credit scene Kind of what's coming next This was sort of like that to me This this actually could have been a post credit scene They should they could have or should have maybe yeah. just done two Where they ended with the Boba thing And then this was one and then the Cobb Banth Because we get, the, we get the moment that we wanted Where as soon as we saw Peli build the ship for Mando With that droid port hollowed out We all assumed that we were going to get Grogu Popping his little head in there at some point He was going to have his face up on the glass And he's breathing and it fogs up the glass And him and Mando are just having their back and forth And he wants to go into into light speed You know, he wants to go really fast Mando's like, no, no, come on, we're not doing it again We're not doing it again Okay, fine, one more time And then he sets in Grogu Whee! Yeah, this. I mean, they could. This show, Gro, Grogu Mando scenes, they just play me like a fiddle. I mean, like they, I can go from laughing to crying in in a in the you know in a moment's notice. So, and I always wonder if and how much they knew what they had with Grogu when they brought him into our lives. A they, couple well, years ago. the best argument that they didn't quite know is that the toys weren't ready. So. <laughs> They, there was some quite a delay before Grogu merch was widely available after. Just, uh, so uh, not a Star season. Wars way of doing it, right? Yeah, it's always months ahead when those things are out before the movies would come out or before the big shows, and so uh, this guy is is a hit, and they fly off, and uh, we get the the credits come up, and and the theme now we're literally getting. Them, some of the people it, singing the theme, just singing Boba Fett's name over and over. Yeah, it's all it's like, what, what the hell? I don't know what it was, but yeah. it, um, and, and I, you know, we get go ahead. No, I just want like I do kind of wonder. You raised this question before, like the people who were like diehard Boba Fett fans. Did they like this show? I don't know. I haven't really, I haven't gone on like Reddit. A Reddit or, you know, form. Or people or, saying like, yeah. oh, they ruined Boba Fett. I'm sure they're saying that. I don't know. Um, you know my argument is there wasn't really anything to ruin. <laughs> there was nothing that was <laughs> actual really canon. Right. Um, until now. And you are right. Like <laughs> the things that I think about most with Boba Fett now are going to be from this show. Mm-hmm. The moments, the like the richest moments. I'm gonna th- now. If I think of Boba Fett, I'm thinking of Boba Cad Bane standoff, Boba on a Rancor, Boba in the back, the tank with the Tuscans. Like there are plenty of things I'm thinking about with Boba that 
he comes off cool or or good moments, but yeah, I was never a diehard enough fan to have built up all these things that I wanted to see Boba do. So I didn't really have a perception, and I think you were kind of the same way. So I I'm guarantee there are a lot of people who were just thinking this was not the Boba Fett that I was expecting yeah. to see. Yeah, I just I, the reason I thought of that was like the end credits. It's almost like reminding you, like it, like the Church of Boba Fett. Like boba boba, <laughs> it's yeah, kind of. It is. Um, it was like I, uh, I was amu- I was like briefly amused by it, but me too. It made me laugh again. There were, yeah. but it just didn't. I was like, what is? It felt like a you know liturgy day at La Salle for for us <laughs> when we were back in our day. So I was like, is this is this the chorus of the choir singing here right. in the back? Yeah. And um, the post credit scene, Cobb Vanth in the back the tank with the mod artist. Mm-hmm. So Cobb is alive We kind of assumed But there's not I mean this wasn't This wasn't much It just sort of felt like Something we could have seen I don't Generally we get a little more From the end of a movie Or an end of a show Before the next show comes I think Like I said I was joking with you about Things that we we could see last week a, a Han Solo And people like that showing up I was almost Expecting to get a little clip of maybe someone else that's going to come next, you know, like I had mentioned Akira or people like that. Was there something more? But yeah, we didn't we didn't really get that. So Cobman uh, being around is cool. I'm totally fine with yeah. that. I guess I just wanted maybe, and maybe it was because I was a little bit down at this point overall that I was kind of hoping for a little pick me up at the end. <laughs> And I didn't, uh, didn't really get it as you're, much. You know? You're addicted. You're addicted was, to this shit. I was gonna say I, I, I am in Southern California, so right. it's not. We can go and get a, any pick me ups we need around here. I, you know? <laughs> I, I'm relieved there was no like this show did enough cheap tricks, enough toys. That's a great point. Like nothing. No, they didn't like, need another flash it, in the pan. It, they didn't. They didn't. I, I don't think they serviced the characters at hand. I, you know, if suddenly there was Kira as the one behind the Pike Syndicate, it just would have, to me, I, I don't know. I, I'm, re- I, I always wanted like a smaller show that was centered on Tatooine and it got, you know, we went off world with Mando. We, we, we I mean, we haven't even, I, mean, I don't even think of Luke Skywalker as part of the show. When I've been Which reflecting is nuts. on Book of Which Boba Fett, nuts. I've like excised that whole episode. But I'm, I'm, you know, I want Star Wars to to breathe again. I don't, you know, I just don't want everything to be about who who are they going to bring in next? Like which which toy will they play with next? Um, and I get the appeal, and it appeals to me too. Right? I love the N one Star like Starfighter. I'm I'm not. I'm not in it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm part of this, right? I'm part of the culture that, uh, that just eats up these shows. But, um, I was relieved there was nothing like that in the post credits. Um, it doesn't mean they can't, they won't build to that. But, um, yeah, um, I agree with you. It didn't need to try any more cheap tricks or anything. It tried something out. It didn't quite connect. There were some very high highs, some low lows. And and the lows weren't even like awful things. They were just yeah. disconnected. They were just disjointed. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, that was terrible. I ha- I can't believe I watched that. It was just we would watch things and say, I don't know how how this connects all that well, or this yeah. kind of feels out of place a little yeah. bit. 
Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll be on like it this episode this series has kind of shaken my my faith in the Favreau Filoni. Not not in, I don't want to I, I love Dave Filoni and I don't know who's who's to blame for the no. weaknesses if anyone of this this series but there's kind of been a narrative that you know they 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 can fix they, things they mucked and... they mucked up the sequels by not having a plan and now Fa- Favreau and Filoni get it and they're making the show that Star Wars fans want um but like I said at the start of the this this pod, like I actually think a lot of the problems with the rise of Skywalker are the same problems as this this show. Um, that yes, there might be a guiding plan that they're working towards, but man, is it a jagged you know, like a jagged path to get these characters' toys in position for the next scene, right? Um, so, you know, I'm Obi-Wan's going to be a real big, uh, I, I agree. If, if folks, if you think I've been critical, like if this, if Obi-Wan falls into the traps of the show of just filling in the gaps, character of the week, um, you know, it, I, no, it can't, I hope so. Because you're I, right. I've, I have been pretty, I've put my fate like in, in, Marvel and in a lot of these things Every time it sort of felt like we were getting off course For the most part They steered us back pretty well I mean let like the Mandalorian Show came out of absolutely Nowhere and is some of the Best Star Wars stuff yeah. Around it's fantastic Yeah, That doesn't I mean, mean that they're infallible Yeah, That doesn't mean that everything Coming afterwards Is going to be perfect or Or that they're not um, You know or that you they're uh, above any type of critique. This was not perfect. There were a lot of mistakes here. I think that could have been made. And like you said, maybe we find out uh, next month, six months, five years from now, what happened, and we do give them a little bit more leeway when we find out. Yeah. But but you you got to connect. You cannot have two or three things in a row miss. That yeah. that's what hurts. You're, it's the neck. Whatever the next one would have been after this. Is huge and it's going to be Obi-Wan coming up And that thing has to hit because There are going to be a lot of things happening there I mean we're going to get Hayden Christensen yeah. back I, Like some big stuff And Obi-Wan was Honestly when you think of the characters In Star Wars like Obi-Wan was one of the First major Characters that we were introduced to That set scenes for us And there's so much in the Clone Wars And in the animated stuff they've done With him and I'm yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I always was, yeah, but I'm, I, I'm more of it. There's a little bit of an anxious energy, yeah. Now where it's like, okay, come on, don't. And I felt this sort of after Eternals, and then after the next one, Hawkeye, I thought was pretty good. You know, the Hawkeye wasn't perfect, yeah. but it was sort of like I don't think anybody was expecting Hawkeye to be the greatest thing in the world. So the fact that it was like, oh, okay, that was that was good. Well, you know, yeah. like that that sort of righted the ship a little bit. This this was a miss for Star Wars after a lot of good vibes and good energy from the last couple of years of The Mandalorian. Yeah, I, I I guess I you know I I feel like this show was built around moments, powerful as they were, but without a story. I don't think it arose from here's a story we could tell about Boba Fett. Right? It was more like here are things the characters can do, and yes, they're advancing a plot. 
a a you know macro plot across multiple shows. But what what did we learn from the book of Boba Fett about Boba Fett that we didn't really know? Like, and that's my fear with with, with Obi Wan that yeah, Obi Wan is in the desert for twenty years. Sure, we can show him do things, but what is the point of returning to obi-wan because i would argue and we'll we'll just eventually do this pot again i'm sure for obi-wan that obi-wan has a complete story and arc him being in the desert is part of his failure so there's really no reason in my mind to go back to it right i mean this is this kind of sense you know star wars tv the solo movie even rogue one which has a lot of merit these you know now, TV and movies have been geared toward, quote, filling in gaps. And that's just not, I mean, I guess the prequels are also filling in a gap, to be fair. I mean, uh, I, and and Mando is also filling in a gap, but Mando does more than just explain how the First Order is, work is eventually I think it's going to explain something about the First Order and about Palpatine, yes. But it also has found what it's about it's found its identity Mm -hmm. um and i don't think this show found its identity ironically because it's about boba fett (laughs) boba fett's rebirth um and i i sincerely hope that obi-wan there's a store like there there's There's a plot something that really enriching enriches the character and tells its own self-contained story that doesn't you know yes there's going to be allusions to you know the their mustafar and that that history that obi-wan brings with anakin but it can't just be it can't just be reflecting on that which existed i think it needs to also have a life of its own and this book of boba fett didn't have a life of its own matt before we get out of here anything else on your uh thoughts your notes that we uh we haven't hit on um I don't know. I mean, I I gave my kind of big picture state of the Star Wars universe take. Um, you know, I, I've said I've I've I'm I don't know if I would say warming up. You know, I, I there were things I liked about this this show, and um, I do think there was there was a story to be fair, right? I think the story, ironically, the one episode we didn't deep dive, episode four, kind of encapsulates the 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 thesis of the show and the problem with the show. So like the, the core theme is and this is from episode four, you can only get so far without a tribe. I think mm-hmm. that's the story with the Tuscans. That's the story with the tribe he builds with Kersantan, with the mods, etc. But in the same episode, right? I think in the same scene, Boba Fett also says, I'm tired of working for idiots who are going to get me killed. And in this show, Boba Fett is the idiot for whom people are working and for whom they they get killed. So, like, it kind of, you know, never escaped. His higher purpose never really coalesced for me. And in the end, I I kind of see him as oblivious to his own shortcomings in a way. And it's just a weird... You know, it's kind of just a weird place to have this character. <laughs> the line at the end, it almost pissed me off a little bit. Where when he said it, it was like, "We're not made for this." Like, no, yeah, what? Some, like, some, I've heard some takes that like the "we're not suited for this." So the "we're not suited for this" is is referring to like, 
oh, this kind of praise. The praise, right? And the so people... some people have seen this episode and think like, no, he is staying on Tatooine. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't have that faith. I don't I either. think he's off Tatooine the first, you know, uh, yeah. as soon as he revs up, you know, the Slave One engine. So, And I think he'll feel, he, I wouldn't be shocked if he's got, um, if if it's set up when he leaves, right? Some of his people are in place over there and it's the, mo- you know, like Maybe, he feels yeah. like, okay, I've done my job over here. Tatooine is running well. There's no spice coming in. Like they've got a good system happening, but I agree with you. I don't think he's just there. And yeah. Matt Velasco, man, this was a blast, man. I, I, I thank you so much for this. And uh, I hope in a, uh, I, so, so far we've got, Mandalorian season two when you joined in We've got all of Book of Boba Fett And we've got Star Wars episode One and two So uh, Obi-Wan Is in May is that right Yeah May so maybe we can Shoot for trying to get um, Episode three done Because that'll have a little bit of Obi-Wan in it Yeah that can kind of lead us into uh, Into the Obi-Wan series uh, Before that starts That's a a great idea yeah so Um, Awesome been on my list for some time I gotta rewatch Revenge of the Sith Yeah awesome so we can uh, we can do that We'll watch uh, Revenge of the Sith in, the, in a couple in the next you know we'll do it a few weeks Maybe before the Obi-Wan series starts And then uh, and then we'll jump back into that And I, I'm Honestly I'm gonna actually gonna miss these uh, Conversations with you each yeah, and every I, week They're, they're I, a lot of fun and, No uh, I, I, I had a workout You know I I I I told my my partner that I'm looking forward to the podcast because I need closure. Like I yes. just need a, like I need a I, I watch the episode one more time. I'm gonna talk about it. We'll 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 get to where we get. And I don't think I'm gonna rewatch this show until maybe when we're a couple weeks out for season three. I think I'll give it another like I'm gonna watch it all in a binge mm-hmm. and just try to to give it another shot as a whole because it was a you know we watched it week to week it was That's a very it was jarring structure mm-hmm. so so i'm going to give it you know um i i haven't i'm not going to compl- i'm not going to erase this <laughs> this show isn't erased from my canon or some bullshit like that like uh it exists i've worked out my feelings with you uh i'm going to move on put one foot forward um and uh and and look Look toward the uh, binary uh, Sunrise of Obi-Wan And man I, I really appreciate Your honesty Like w- things that we like things that we don't It's you know I, I never Like BSing people and I don't I think people can tell if you're being Sort of phony like I said we're not pushing anything Here yeah. we don't have any we're just fans Of this show of these shows we love to break Them down for you and share some of our thoughts And kind of maybe predict where they're going But we didn't have any reason to push anyone to either go watch this or not. We just want to share what we think, what we know, and uh, and where we can go moving forward. And moving forward, we're heading to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Matt, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate all your time. This was a blast. And uh, take a few weeks. You won't have to be annoyed by this voice every Monday night uh, for a little while. And then uh, we'll reconnect again uh, in the next uh, month or so and, uh, and start planning out what we're going to do for Obi-Wan. Great. May the Force be with you. Right back with you. We got the Mandalorian, Matt Velasco here on That's What G Said. Anytime there's uh, anything new in the world of Star Wars, we're going to hope that Matt will be along with us. He's our uh, our Star Wars guy who's been along for the ride with us. Matt Velasco, thank you so much for your help. But don't go anywhere, folks. We got plenty more on this episode of That's What G Said. Oh, that was a lot of fun hanging out with Matt every week. We'll have uh, what Obi-Wan Kenobi coming up 
in a couple months. So hopefully Matt will be back with us. We'd love to touch base with him and check out those episodes when uh, there's more Star Wars content coming up. You'll be hearing about it right here on That's What G Said Podcast. One of our sponsors, one of our longtime sponsors, full-service realtor, Cindy Carava. And if you go to her website, cindycarava.com, C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A.com, you can find a bunch of listings there for a lot of the houses that she has. You can see some of her former projects. You can see all of the ways she can help you as a full-service realtor with buying, with selling, with leasing. She can help connect you to the right kind of people if you're looking for home improvement. You know, all the vendors you might need, gardeners, landscapers, painters, people that she has experience with that she's used in her own homes. Maybe you're having trouble with a loan. She'll connect you with the right type of lenders, people that will help you get all those details taken care of. Cindy's going to do that for you. She's going to check all the boxes. She's going to be honest with you. She's kind. She's genuine. She's going to make your life a lot easier. And she's not annoying. She's not someone that you hate. You would not like dealing with over and over again. CindyCarava.com. Check out the website and uh, make sure you tell her hello and, uh, and that you heard about her on That's What G Said podcast. You're going to hear about an old wrestling rewatch episode coming up next. Andrew Champagne joins me. And we head back to 1999 WCW for Spring Stampede. Oh, yeah. Oh, wrestling rewatch with Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. <laughs> it's time for another edition of the Old Wrestling Rewatch. Andrew Champagne here with me this week. Uh, no DZ, but he'll be back with us again for uh, our next edition. And Andrew, this was your selection, and we're going to be heading to WCW. Normally, when we talk about going to WCW in this time period, we probably would be talking about a show that you know you'd be trying to. Uh, Give us a hard time with watching It'd probably be one of the awful WCW shows at the end of the era there But this is actually one of their last Good shows there are some really Solid matches throughout the, and, and I think what's the, the There's a good opener you get a lot of good Openers at WCW but to me what Stood out in this particular show Was the main event Matches that had the biggest build They were not complete duds They were both good to above average And kind of fun Yeah, this is a fun show, and there's a lot going on around this time in WCW. Revisionist history says that everything after Starcade 98 in WCW was garbage. And about two-thirds of that is absolutely accurate, and there was a lot of bad stuff going on, especially from about mid-2000 onward. But Spring Stampede 99 was a heck of a deal with a lot of really cool stuff, And the cool thing about this show, Gino, is a lot of the stuff ages pretty well, especially stuff that maybe didn't go over all that well when it first happened in 1999. There's a Rey Mysterio-Billy Kidman match that we'll get to that a lot of people didn't like at the time because it was different from a lot of the cruiserweight matches that WCW had been putting on that were six to eight minute sprints. This was a 15-minute wrestling match that started slow and built up And it wound up being a lot better than I remembered. The main event wound up being a lot better than I remembered it. And the opener comes out of nowhere and hits you right between the eyes. It's a fun show. Yeah. Nine matches on the card. And we'll get into it in a second. But Juventud Guerrera versus Blitzkrieg was one of the was listed as. And when you go back and look, one of the best matches of the year. Uh, It was very, very highly regarded. 
And it kind of like you said comes out of nowhere With someone who Mike Tanay said At the time had Not even a hundred matches to his name And I, I don't think that was a you know, a, a, I think that was a shoot comment. I, I think he was serious about that. The, you know, the next few matches on the card: Bam Bam Bigelow, Hack Hack, who is the Sandman, uh, Scotty Riggs, Mikey Whipwreck, another ECW um, uh, signee who was on the show, and that one just kind of was thrown on. It wasn't even part of the listed card. Conan Disco was kind of a little disappointing to me. Other than that, there really wasn't anything. That I thought was even under like the rest of the show The other I guess, six matches or so Were all fine to Above what I was expecting I didn't really get underwhelmed in any of those things You're going to have some goofy stuff with WCW I mean a lot of their production Quality and You know the the You know the video packages and stuff They're not comparable to WWE Or WWF at the time but I will say that they did a they had a lot of pay-per-views and shows throughout this time period, Andrew, that were just like they weren't well timed out. Things were bad. You could tell one match went too long and then the this next match had to rush and then something weird was happening and it just then there was weird in-betweens. This actually moved pretty well for these nine matches. They all seemed like they got plenty of time. I think maybe one of my only gripes with a few of them is maybe they could have cut a mi- couple minutes off of a, a few, but for a time period where they were doing a lot of things wrong. This actually felt not bad coming at out of this show. The way you end with DDP getting the win. He's in a match with he's in the ring with four of the biggest names in the history of professional wrestling, and he's the guy that walks out with the title, and that was the right call. Yeah. And the thing with DDP winning the title is him getting the belt wasn't the mistake. They needed to elevate guys, and they had needed to elevate guys. For several years Paige was right there The problem was They gave him the belt And then they turned him heel And his run near the top of the card Was very Very short lived He wound up dropping the title to Sting Not long after this It might have been either the next night Or the following week on Nitro But after that He wound up doing a lot of the Jersey Triad stuff with Bam Bam Bigelow and Canyon. And that was fine for what it was. But this was a guy that went over Ric Flair, Sting, and to an extent Hulk Hogan with Randy Savage in the ring. If you're going to give that guy the belt, you don't take it off of him that quickly. That was a mistake. As far as this moment goes, though, it's a good moment to end a pretty darn good match. And there were a couple of good matches on this show. Nothing that was overly horrendous. Some stuff that didn't maybe have a pay-per-view feel, but you mentioned the Hack Bigelow match. I'm not much for garbage wrestling, and that's absolutely what this was. But even though it was 11 minutes, it moved quick. It didn't feel like a slog, and it felt like both guys were actively trying. It they were. For a whole lot more than that, even if something isn't your cup of tea. Yeah, it wasn't, like you said, I'm not into that. It was, eh, but the guys were trying. I mean, there were a couple of nasty bumps that Hack took. He came over and was getting reportedly a really big contract, uh, apparently around $200,000 per year at the time, and he only uh, lasted, I think, about not, not even a year. In uh, in WCW when it was all said and done A lot of those ECW guys would get Big paydays to go elsewhere But they just combination of You know the in their element With Paul Heyman He did such for all the You know the the 
Issues that Heyman has right he wasn't great With money there he owed a ton of people stuff He he tried to he, he lied to a lot of People about stuff he tried to get people working Keep work keep them working but He did a fantastic job as a I think as a booker I think he does A really good job as a booker that's Completely different than running a business right Two different things he, if he's the guy Making the calls he does a good job Because he highlights your your strengths so Much and he puts you in a spot Where you don't even Worry about your weaknesses you know you're not even focusing on those You're just worrying about the things that you're good at And and then Some of these guys would go elsewhere And they would be You know they would just be in, in a little bit too deep Sometimes honestly um, and, and that's I think what ended up happening With him because he just never could Be the same guy outside of the ECW When they when they tried it in WWE CW When they tried it in WCW It just didn't, it didn't hit home the same way No and If you're ever doubting how over the Sandman was, go back and watch the very first ECW one-night stand, preferably somewhere other than the WWE Network, which scrubbed Ender Sandman off of the entrance. And just watch the entrance. In those five minutes, he gets the crowd as hyped as anybody else the entire evening. That's all you need to know. This guy was legitimately over in that setting, He goes to WCW for big money, lasts a year, winds up getting cut by a new executive vice president who was under orders to cut costs after Eric Bischoff got shown the door in mid-1999. And at that point, WCW just wasn't going to be a competitor to WWF after that sort of management when they brought in Vince Russo. Russo threw everything he possibly could at the wall, and that resulted in some pretty lousy television, some of which we've covered on the old Wrestling Rewatch. Let's jump into Spring Stampede 1999. So we are in April, April 11th of, two, of 1999 at WCW, and we are in Washington here. We get a video package that goes over the main event. And again, you know, it's hard not to compare. To what was happening at the time This looks like something that would have been done In like the high school AV club You know just compared to what WWE was doing And and this was just something They never really got all that into Their video packages That was something they always did But just I mean you would get the Like the, the incredible voiceovers And there would be like little mini movies At the beginning of the w, uh, WWE ones And I don't mean like the Tony Schiavone Movies that they had at the beginning Of the, some of the WWC, WCW Pay-per-views earlier but you'd get like a, An incredible few minutes Of storyline and It was so well done and Yeah these were eek Not not great not always just not the greatest Way to start the show but again this was a Really good show afterwards we get the announcers setting things up One thing I didn't love though This is just This is a bad time for Bobby the Brain This was He just wasn't sharp You know he was slurring in some spots too There's a one time when Tony's like You gonna talk And Tony was I didn't love Probably my least favorite era of both ta- uh, Tony and Bobby Cause Tony's starting to be kind of snarky Tony towards the end of his time not just kind of like the genuinely happy Tony Schiavone announcer like he is now Or like he was early on In WCW when things were run better And you get Bobby Who he's just kind of checked out And over it and there were all the I don't know but there was all the speculation this Around this time period of you know him Drinking a lot during the shows and I think Just knowing that I, I Felt like I would picked up on things so with With them too Tanae was fine you know you know What you're going to get from Tanae but I did think That um 
there were a lot of times where I was just like, kind of, what the hell are they saying? You know, like, what the, what's yeah. going on? Um, this around this time, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan did not get along. They they didn't when they were in WCW together. Tony and Bobby approached the job in fundamentally different ways. Heenan came over from WWF. He left Vince and company on very good terms. It wasn't a case where he just up and left and went to the company, whatever. It wasn't like that. He went and he tried pitching his ideas to Eric Bischoff, who said probably the four worst words you could say to Bobby Heenan, which are, you're just an announcer. And when business was going good, you couldn't really tell. The problem was when business started going down, Heenan's motivation started to go down. I don't know if this was him drinking or if it was also the beginnings of the throat cancer that would ultimately radically change his voice because you can hear a little bit of the slurs of the Mm -hmm. S's. And if you listen to a shoot interview that he did right before he went under the knife to remove a mask that they weren't sure what it was, he has that and it's worse. So I don't know how much of it was drinking and how much of it was the cancer starting to form in his body. But either way, not a good time for him. He and Shivani just had no chemistry near the end of that run. Uh, Mike Tanay was Mike Tanay, but even so, even if Mike Tanay is fantastic, and he is, you're left with a three-man broadcasting team of one guy who doesn't like Bobby Heenan, another guy who doesn't like Tony Shivani, and Mike Tanay, who at this time wasn't the number one guy. He was sort of the analyst and, you know, using football terms, he was the guy drawing plays on the telestrator, right? That just, it wasn't his role to be able to lead that three person team. He was the guy that was there to chime in with analysis from occasion and, and go from there. It wasn't his role to be the number one guy. And there are a couple of instances on commentary that are not good. However, this opener has a really good line right at the top of the show Blitzkrieg is introduced as from the cosmos. And uh, I believe it was Tony who said, you know where the cosmos are located? And I believe it was Bobby who said, right outside of parts unknown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I he, love he, that line. he still got a few here and there, you know, but it's just like you said, you can just kind of feel something missing and, and just things kind of off with the whole. And you, you laid out a lot of the reasons there as we get into the. Yeah, the setup from the, these three guys, Tony, Mike, and Bobby, they talk about the uh, mainly the, the two major matches, which is Nash Goldberg in a rematch, and then the Four Corners title match, DDP, Ric Flair, Hogan, and Sting with Macho Man Randy Savage as the special guest ref. So we've got Blitzkrieg versus Hoovy in the opener, Hooventude Guerrero with no mask. This is a number one contenders match for the Cruiserweight Championship. The winner will face the champ the next night on Nitro. And kind of circle around in the ring for a few minutes, a little back and forth. We get an ankle lock by Blitzkrieg, and then a headlock. And, you know, things are pretty, after just a little feeling out process, it's a pretty quick pace throughout, man. We get chops going. We get Hurricane Rana. We, we get a handspring elbow We get he's kind of slamming Hoovy's head into the corner And then he sl- Blitzkrieg slides out of the ring When Hoovy comes out with a suicide dive He rolls him back in the ring We get a brain buster there Then we get a surfboard Blitzkrieg comes out of it And he kind of has Hoovy in a pinfall attempt 
Then we get a like a back kick, a drop kick. These guys are just going at it. Blitzcrag goes up to the top. He goes for a splash, but Hoovy moves. Then he runs to the other corner and comes off to the outside, but Hoovy hits him with a drop kick off the top. That was a cool spot. Uh, and then he rolls him back in the ring. We get chops here, head scissors, then a, a springboard moonsault, and they both are out. Tanay says th- at this point that he has uh, Blitzcrag has less than 100 matches. We get this kind of twisting splash at one point. There was a, a bad botched spot that, you know, I, I think it doesn't hurt the match overall. These guys were doing some crazy stuff, but it did. I mean, it's going to hurt any botched spot towards the end when they're trying to build things up. And it, they got back, but you could tell there were a few things right around where they were just kind of trying to get their flow back. Once they did, though, um, you get uh, both men up to the top, and Hoovy catches him and hits a Hoovy driver. And I think we went just after 11 minutes there This one, this one, Andrew, I had about uh, I had a four-star match and, and I think grading it on a curve It was probably more than a four-star match At that time period And that's probably why it was on the lists Of some of the, you know, top 10 to top 20 Or whatever matches of the year By, you know, by a lot of the places That ranked matches that year One of the things that gets forgotten In people for remembering WCW is Juventud Guerrera could flat out go. Um, he gets overshadowed by Rey Mysterio for the luchador thing. And also he was the first to lose his mask. And that robbed him of a lot of the allure. We're going to talk about another guy that lost his mask later on in this show. But Juventud Guerrera, over the course of his career, has put forth these random, okay, I'm going to make a star out of this other guy performances. He had this match against Blitzkrieg, and a couple years later, he showed up to work for TNA, and he had one of the best eight-minute matches you will ever see in your life with a guy from Canada named Teddy Hart. If you can track down that match, you absolutely should. It's genius, high-flying stuff. Juventud Guerrero was a heck of a worker, and Blitzkrieg was no slouch either. This is a ridiculous story that this guy has. He worked for WCW for maybe six months. He was incredibly talented. He was crazy. And he would do a lot of these stunts that not a lot of guys would do. If you look at the moonsaults that he does with Hoovy on the floor, Hoovy's a step or two in the aisle. Blitzkrieg is covering a lot of ground with everything he's doing. Predictably, he got hurt. He wound up recovering And in doing so, discovered that he was passionate about the medical field and helping other people recover from injuries that he had. So he retired from wrestling. He is now a male nurse. It's actually a really cool little story. And he wound up ultimately mentoring a guy that's kicking around right now. The Blitzkrieg gimmick came back a couple of years later. And the guy under the mask was Jack Evans. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, it's a cool little story, and Blitzkrieg had a couple of really good matches. He had this one. He had a match with Rey Mysterio on a Nitro that was also very good. This match is its incredibly fast-paced for the time period. A lot of the stuff these guys are doing are things that guys today are doing, and the Hoovy driver off the top for the pin, that's a heck of a finish. I have this at four stars. There were a couple of small botches, a couple of little timing things, but this was a hell of a deal, man. And one that you're you're not expecting. Like honestly, I did not remember. And I'm I'm someone who goes back. Like I forgot who Blitzcrag was. 
Yeah. When I when I was looking through the the listing of this show, I mean, this is, and and I, I mean, I'm sure I had watched it at some point, but it wasn't something that stood out to me to remember. And so this was one of those one of my favorite parts of doing this, like those pleasant surprises that you're like, oh my gosh, I just completely forgot that that existed. So a, a really solid 11 minutes to start, and that it's just one of those things that it helps to set the tone for a show, right? When you just get a good beginning like that. It really does help to set the tone And it was a tone that You know was pretty solid throughout It, Albeit I, I will mention I think my least favorite Three matches are the next three But the, the second match on the card Wasn't even all that bad and we're going to talk about it right now I, We uh, We get the street fight Before we did though we uh, we got a video Package between uh, for a little Build up between and Gino I don't know if you Know this or not these two guys they're Supposed to be extreme Extreme drinking game They were leading every drink Every time one of the announcers Says the word extreme You will be blasted by the End of this match Tony asks Or who is Mr. Extreme in WCW So this is the Sandman versus Bam Bam Bigelow Former ECW That's what they're leaning into Why they're always you know, mentioning Extreme uh, Bam Bam brings out a bunch of weapons Hack has Chastity with him uh, That's the name of the, uh, the the lady that accompanies him And we get a uh, I mean this is just a brawl I mean weapons, tables they're climbing on things, flipping. I mean, Hack just takes a couple nasty bumps on the back of his head. Tables broken. A lot of headshots in this match. Oh yeah, tables broken. Then they're heading back. They finally, they kind of down the aisle and then over by the entrance way. They finally head back towards the ring, and he Bigelow puts him in a cart. That's when he he takes that nasty one, kind of by the back of his head. He kind and he looked a little dazed. For a few minutes afterwards, like he was, his bell was rung, which um, it had to have been. It had to have been. Um, crutches are in the mix. He, he slams uh, Bam Bam through a table, and then he moves. It was funny. He's trying to set up the table ac- on the outside across the ring and the railing where the fan, you know, where the the fans are, and and it, it won't reach. So he just grabs the railing and moves it a little bit closer. It's like. Actually, I was like, that's that's a good idea. Most people would have sat there and struggled for a while. You could tell this guy has had a lot of situations like that in probably, you know, smaller gyms or smaller arenas where he's had to make makeshift. I thought that was just kind of cool spot to, to see. He, I mean, anytime they try to do any wrestling, though, it's bad. They try to suplex that just, ugh, both men just fell. <laughs> they couldn't get over. And then the ladder comes into the mix. Um but you you were right. I mean, these guys are trying. Like they are working. It's just they're missing some spots. Bam bam. I, I did write down, oh man, the WrestleMania main eventer. Bam bam Bigelow. <laughs> the former WrestleMania main eventer. Somersault on the ladder on Bigelow. Oh my gosh. So he's got the ladder on top of him and he somersaults on him. Tony tries to explain the reasoning, you know, that um the reasoning and Bobby just says, "Why do it?" That that kind of made me laugh uh, at that spot. Um, yeah, really nasty bumps towards the end. A couple where he looks like he lands badly on his head, and then you get uh, Bam Bam picking up the railing. Now they're using the railing. The fire extinguisher gets in the mix. Chastity gets in the ring. She tries to use it, but she can't get it to go. So Bam Bam gets it, and he. Shoots the fire extinguisher on her So she rolls out of the ring Side rush and leg sweep By Hack 
They're kind of trying to get to the top rope They end up both getting there And then Bam Bam with the greetings from Asbury Park Through the table that oof, That was a bad bump it Looks like he landed on the back of his head there I mean all that said The effort and these guys were trying Like this wasn't like a zero star match Or a dud I thought this was probably like a Two star match or something maybe like a, Maybe a little under that depending on if it's your Your, your type or not it's not Mine but they tried they did the best that they could there Crowd got into a few of the spots here But it just This crowd You know I will give WCW Some credit in that they would b- Do things like okay we want to have Some you know An opening match that's Luchador cruiserweight type of match You know a good wrestling match and then we'll have You know a match like this that's some plunder They wanted to have that and then they'll, they'd have a little Little different styles throughout but this this kind of style didn't really connect in WCW. Yeah, and I had this at two and a quarter. I thought this was fine for what it was. This is an actual thing that happened. And if you would have told Paul Heyman when he had both of these guys under contract that this would happen at a WCW pay-per-view, he would have been beside himself. Hack hides a table in the hay and dives off the stagecoach. <laughs> that is an actual thing that happened And by the way, it's a heck of a dive Because Hack, the Sandman, whatever you want to call him He's not a small dude no. He's about 6'2", 260 here And he does a somersault splash Off of a stagecoach Onto a table Nobody is going to be chanting Lucha, Lucha, Lucha But that was a pretty innovative little spot And if you're going to use a unique set Use it somehow, right? So that was fine. Did not like the unprotected shots to the head. Knowing what we know now, that's cringeworthy stuff. They get a little bit of a laugh out of me when Hack pulls out a safety rail from under the ring. Like, this was around the time when you'd start finding really random things under the ring just for the sake of, you know, of a laugh or a gag or whatever. And in this instance, it was a safety rail. And one of the announcers goes, that's what I like. A man who comes to the match with his own safety rail. Like what? Uh, Okay. The finish was a decent idea, but it's one of those things that certainly sounds better than it looks Greetings from Asbury Park off the top rope through a table. Ouch. A, a lot of big bumps taken here. 20 years later, it, it, it the, not the kind of bumps you want to see when you're trying to rewatch a show for fun. But all told, as hardcore matches go, I've seen a lot worse. You're right. It wasn't, it wasn't awful. And <laughs> Hack was around uh, until September 1999. Tony says, hey, fans, have a clue. Don't try this in your backyard. Bobby says, yeah, try it in your living room. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, we are on to what was an unannounced match next that they say they you were. You never gonna... know what's going to happen in WCW. You, you might get Scotty Riggs versus Mikey Whipwreck. And this was just the third match for Whipwreck in WCW. This thing just... It just felt out of place Like they didn't need this on the show It was a pretty good card throughout It's not even that this match was was the worst thing in the world This just felt like something you would see on WCW Saturday night And, right. and maybe not even Nitro Let alone a pay-per-view Like this at the most was a Nitro match And you and you can tell that you've got A guy like they mentioned Mikey Whipwreck who he's totally Figuring out 
this new company and their style because this was a guy who wasn't even really trained, right? Like he was just the dude that was like helping them put the put the uh, the rings together, you know, and he would just get in the ring and just take beatings sometimes and then they sort of built him up. Like I don't know how much he really could do at this point in in an actual match. He was he, he you know, he was willing to throw his body around like a lot of these guys were. And then you've got Riggs who was just coming out of this flock Stuff with Raven and he's working On this like sort of Rick Rude buff Bagwell Combined shtick That he's doing you know so he's working that Out it just overall that That was my main thing it just, I just kept put, Not a pay-per-view match That's just no. what it felt like you know To me what it seemed like is WCW Realized they had three hours of pay-per-view Time and two hours And 30 minutes of stuff booked and mm-hmm. they looked around at who was there. They looked around, they looked around, they looked around and went, uh, uh, Riggs, uh, you're going to work with, uh, with Whipwreck. Go out for 10 minutes and just have fun. Now, yeah. Scotty Riggs is nobody's idea of a ring general. He had a decent tag team run in the mid-1990s with Marcus Bagwell as the American Males. And if you ever want to look up one of the worst entrance themes in the history of professional wrestling search the american males just you know find something afterwards that gets it right out of your head because otherwise it will earworm and it will ruin your day but after that he went to raven's flock he had the thing where he had an eye patch for a little while which was deeply weird they were done with the flock they tried to reinvent him as like this rick rude rick martell kind of guy And it just didn't work. He was gone later that year. So this match in particular, not all that great. If there's one thing Mikey Whipwreck can do, it's get beaten up. He can take a bump, man. And he makes you feel sympathetic for him when he does it. He just can't go, you know, he has to be in that situation. You have to be building him well, or it has to be a match that... once he starts to go like the back and forth, it gets a little sloppy. And then, like we were saying, Riggs wasn't a finished product by any means. So it was just, yeah, it it definitely felt like the low spot to me on the card. But I wasn't expecting much out of it with these two guys. Scotty Riggs ends up getting the win. It, the the win was even kind of just sort of abrupt. There was a weird side. There was a side lush, uh, Russian leg sweep two count. Whipwreck was in control. He had a Hurricane Rana. But then Riggs gets his foot on the ropes And then it was just a flying forearm For the win It was just kind of like oh okay flying forearm And he picked up the win just after seven minutes So yeah I not mean, the worst thing You'll ever see but it just Kind of a weird, a weird spot I think you hit it It was like they looked around and said hey We need at least five to ten more minutes Of something in the ring We, we gotta get some a group of people out there So let's, let's find two And they, they threw these guys out there So Right now Whipwreck took one really big bump. Uh, Riggs threw a shoulder tackle, and Whipwreck goes flying from the apron right into the guardrail. If you're looking for a good bump spot, that's the good bump spot there because it makes sense. And for a very brief time, you're going, oh, wait a minute, this match stinks. But just that one little ooh, I think, adds about a half star to the overall match quality. Now, Whipwreck is a guy that when he showed up in WCW, I was intrigued. Because he did a lot of really cool stuff in ECW for being a guy that wasn't pushed a whole heck of a lot. He was basically there to take a beating. That was his job. He won the tag titles with Cactus Jack. And Cactus Jack 
sets Mikey Whipwreck up, and Cactus Jack is livid on the mic for this. We just won the tag team championships, Mikey. Do you know what that means? Mikey Whipwreck looks into the camera, and he's terrified. This is like an 11-year-old kid realizing he's just entered a Mortal Kombat tournament or something like that, where if you lose, you're going to get killed. <laughs> he looks in the microphone and goes, it means I'm going to die. <laughs> just he, he had a lot of really cool moments in ECW. And that goes back to one of your original points. The fact that Paul Heyman, when it came to maximizing the strengths of guys that had maybe one or two big strengths, you guys in the history of the business have been better than Heyman at that. So nope. I, I, I love most of his stuff, but this was just it. That's all it was. It was there. The we get a video package for our next match. And I got to say, this was actually my most the most disappointed I was with any match on the show, because I know I've seen these two guys do a heck of a lot better, even with each other. They just, I just didn't think this ever got going in the ring. They were d- getting a little sticky, you know, co- Disco's got the cowboy hat when he comes out. Now the crowd, they were so into Conan his his stuff at his mic work at the beginning. They were really into the Conan stuff, at, you know. And and he takes the mic and he's kind of running down Disco a little bit. And I I liked. <clears throat> we've done a couple shows where we were very impressed with with uh, some of Disco's work. I think one where he had to work double duty, and I just I kept expecting a little bit more from these two guys who are pretty good veterans, you know, and. It just to me, this was this was the real down spot on the entire card. Like I said, I wasn't expecting anything out of rugs and whipwreck. And when they told us that was just going to be thrown on the card, anyways, I wanted a little bit more from these two guys. They know each other well. They have a podcast still t- together today, so I was expecting a little bit more chemistry. Bobby says uh, Conan is doing the Mexican hat dance at one point. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I just I never felt a, a flow. We get. Um, you know, nothing, towards the end, back and forth. Um, this is where I could tend to kind of sense Bobby was slurring a little bit too. They're kind of, you know, up and down, el- elbow drops off the top rope. We get a little back and forth punching here. Conan hits the rolling clothesline. Tony says, "It's the." Uh, it, Tony says, "If it's the." Wait, wait, what was I can't even read my freaking notes here. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Brain's talking about you how you shouldn't showboat. And Tony is the one that's saying, it's the 90s brain. You've got a showboat. I was like, what? Bobby the brain talking about not uh not showboating here. Um towards the end, we get a disco kick out of the 187. Conan rolls him up. Then he roll he sends disco into the ropes, neck breaker, and then the last dance. Conan reverses it and he actually hits Disco's move on him to pick up the win after 917. Eh, super slow down the stretch. I didn't like I didn't like this match. This was the one thing on the show that I was really like, eh, I was expecting more from these two guys. If you like 5 minutes of Chinlock, this is the match for you. It was so much of trying to get those re- that rest hold, man. And it's like, what are you guys tired from? You weren't doing anything to get tired. Yeah, and it's one of those things where was Conan ever a fantastic in-ring worker? No, but there were certain things that he could do. He was over with the crowd. 
in hindsight, his pre-match stuff where he'd go 30 seconds talking about being batted, batted, and rowdy, rowdy. Like, and he called him a it, strawberry? He called him a strawberry? And they were like, like what the hell's a strawberry? Yeah. Is that supposed to like is that supposed to be a slur of some sort? I yeah, don't know. I didn't know. And it, like who's supposed to be the good guy here? We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. The the only thing I can tell is maybe Conan, because Disco was never a face other than when he was a straight up comedy character. But this is one of those things where we know there's a better match in them and we just didn't get it here. This to me was the worst match of the night. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even mention the storyline going into this match, which was apparently about a music video. Yeah, like a rap versus disco cowboy thing i mean nah just no boss yeah, i had no a hard time for this one yep had a hard time getting into this one not the case for our next match which was the wcw cruiserweight title match ray mysterio jr versus kidman these guys are also the tag team champs and they had a, a nice little handshake before they started and this was good andrew I had this at as at least a three and a half, and and maybe even between you know closer to a, a four star itself. Um, I didn't I didn't quite like it as much as the, and and maybe because I I was expecting not expecting, but I know these two guys can really really go. Versus in the first match, Blitzcrank kind of surprised the hell out of me when I wasn't maybe expecting it. But this was good. I don't have too many gripes about this match throughout. I mean, they start right away. Shoulder block, uh, moonsault attempt. We get a uh, um, Kidman goes to the apron and uh, head scissors, which was a cool spot, and then um, off the top rope with the splash, throws Ray into the railing, and then Ray reverses it around. Um, then he kind of drapes him throat first over the railing. Little shout out to uh, Macho Man and Ricky the Dragon from years back. We get a moon. Uh, Ray goes for a moonsault off the apron, but Kidman catches him, and then he. He's going for like a drop, but Ray fights out of it, and then Kidman goes flying. We end up getting back in the ring. We get a senton, Mysterio, Hurricane Rana, power bomb spot from Kidman for two backbreakers here. The another Kidman power bomb, then shooting star press off of the apron, which was really cool. It was a running shooting star press. On to Ray who is on the floor From the apron really athletic And we You know <laughs> Bobby isn't saying much and Tony asks if he wants To talk and Bobby's all mad because Tony had said something earlier about Being redundant and so Bobby was like playing si- giving him The silent treatment He's, I, I don't want to be redundant You know it's like how you would How you would be with like your, your Girlfriend or your wife or your friend you know, It's like oh wow they're just definitely Not liking each other as Andrew had uh had mentioned earlier on, we get a cool bulldog spot from the top, spinning heel kick from Ray, power bomb. We get another uh, power slam and big clothesline spot. Ray comes off the top rope and then he's hit with the clothesline. They are going back and forth here. We, I mean, there was only throughout this entire match, maybe a, a one or two. You were talking about chin locks. I said they're just a couple of. Headlock, chin lock spots to just kind of slow it down, transition into the next, you know, flow of the match and, and what's going to happen. These two guys are good. And Kidman is one who I don't think gets enough credit for the kind of work he was doing in this era. He had a really good stretch where this guy put it, put forth some excellent matches over and over. He couldn't really connect 
as the, the you know a, a top tier guy I think on the mic but in ring excellent stuff he went for a power bomb ray reverses it into a face buster then w- w- did he hit a pedigree it was a sit out pedigree yeah so right like wasn't... he didn't knees down but he was like he sat it yeah it was so sort of like a face yeah it was a pretty cool spot and it was like oh nice uh, we get a sunset flip power bomb here we get uh the bulldog off the top oh was awesome that was a really cool spot Then Kidman hits a bulldog Ray with a standing moonsault And then Kidman goes with a face buster Then we get the the um, Ray climbing up to the corner And Ray ends up hitting the Frankensteiner for the win This thing went 15 and a half, Andrew Like I said, I, I had this at 3 and a half Between 3 and a half to 4, depending A very, very good match And uh yeah, now all of a sudden you've got two really good matches in the first, you know, five in the first hour ish of this show. Yeah, uh, this match, as mentioned, was seen by a lot of people as a disappointment when it happened because it was a lot longer and it had a different pace to it than a lot of the other cruiserweight matches, which in hindsight is kind of funny because a lot of people will always complain about wrestlers X, Y, and Z not getting as much airtime as they should. Okay, here's WCW giving Rey Mysterio and Billy Kidman 15, 16 minutes. They're not wrestling the way I want them to. Just shut up. Just shut up if that's the way you're going to approach it. So this is one of those things that's a little bit interesting because Bobby Heenan actually has a reason for why they go slow the first half of the match, and it makes total sense. He says... They're tag team partners. They don't want to hurt each other. Mm-hmm. They're the tag team champions. Yeah. And Shivani and Tanay sort of brushed that off. And I went, okay, if the guy that has managed factions and tag teams for the duration of his career is telling me something about psychology like that, I don't brush it off. I say, oh, that's a good point, Brain. We'll see what happens as things get more intense. And as the two counts start getting closer and closer, we'll see if the emotions wind up getting the better of one of these guys. Tell me how much more that impacts the, the storytelling in that entire match, if they go that route, as opposed to tearing Bobby the Brain down when he said that. I know. And I, you're, this is one of those matches that is better on the, on the rewatch, and it, it's better years later. Because it there's is. no there's no emotion to it, right? People, you're right. I think at this point, Ray was someone who was dropping five, four, four plus star matches a lot, right? You know, Ray was someone who you could get, you could maybe hope for a five star type of match from quite often. And Kidman sort of had that pedigree around this point too. But so maybe people wanted a little more from them. But this was not a bad match by any means. This was a very very good match. Yeah, and this was something that I did enjoy. The only thing I didn't like, and we've got to justifiably drag Eric Bischoff for this. How do you take the, the mask, mask off of Rey Mysterio? Rey, what are like, you thinking? Hey, Rey, Rey's a good-looking guy, but you, Rey is the Rey with the mask, and it just it feels it. That's it. It does feel a little bit off. Just watching but, him with the mask and during this time period, it feels like it doesn't. Feel right And and let's just do some very basic math here Okay I Math is not my strong suit But let's just assume you're at a merch table And you're able to sell 500 Rey Mysterio masks At 
$20 a pop, let's just say. All of a sudden, you're raking in five figures a week off of masks in merch sales. Five figures a week means six figures a month, which means seven figures a year. And Eric Bischoff took the masks off of as many luchadors as he could because reasons. Yeah. Nonetheless, I liked it. Where'd you have it? I had it, I had it at three and a quarter to three and a half. It was yeah. different and it's a little bit jarring, but it's a very good match. And these guys would have a couple of those. They would wind up teaming up towards the end of the year. They would wind up becoming the filthy animals. There were a couple of different variations of that stable. The less said about their 2000 heel run, the better because those guys were meant to be faces through and through. But what we had here was a really good match between two guys who you could count on to have really good matches. Gee, sounds simple, doesn't it? We then got a, a match that we won't really dive into, but it ended up being a match that that got pretty good reviews. It was Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko with Arn Anderson with them. And, match uh, of the year kind of candidate, if you can stomach it. With Raven and Perry Saturn. So, yeah, really good tag match. Raven and Saturn actually very much pulled their weight in this match, so it, it was it was excellent. And they, uh, I, I think, a lot of places had it in the like, yeah, three and a half plus range. So it it was another match on a really good show. We just we don't like to get into the Benoit stuff. We're here to have a, a fun time. And uh, so in the match, Malenko and Benoit end up picking up the win there. That thing goes about fourteen uh, minutes or so. And now we're down to the three main event matches And the first one of them is the United States title tournament finals Big Papa Pump, Scott Steiner versus Booker T Booker T is also the TV champ at the time Tony says that uh, So the whole beginning of the match The fans, Steiner and, and the fans are like going at it He's jumping into the crowd He's over the railing He's like right up in the face of some of the fans Tony says that some of them must have recently have a, had a lobotomy if they want to mess with Scott Steiner, and uh, Skyner is really like this is where Big Papa Pump was starting. He was he wasn't he almost like he was almost not too absurdly muscly looking yet. Like I mean, he was obviously that getting there, but it was almost like oh, you know, he was just to the point where he's like getting too much, and then after this, in the years past, he would just be like he would look. Just absurd like a freak like he would say the, there, I don't really have Much gripes with the match I the referee stuff Just got a little bit out of hand to me Like I know that's the that's the what they're going For they're going for Scott Steiner is Intimidating he's getting in the face of the Fans he's getting in the face of the ref And the ref is so scared that he won't Even DQ the man when he Blatantly kicks Booker T In the nuts right in Front of him and there are some good spots though cuz cuz Papa Pump could still go at this point. We although a lot of this early is just you know Booker selling, he's a lot of it is Booker selling and he starts choking the referee, attacks the referee multiple times. There's a big steroid chant from the crowd. No. <laughs> he, he hits a uh a backbreaker then, then that's when the low blow comes in Then uh, Steiner with a bear hug 
And he hits a big suplex I mean you're going to get lots of suplexes from Steiner He goes for another one Booker T ends up fighting out of it Then he hits a DDT We get some back and forth punches Booker with a spin kick And then Scott pulls the ref in front of him I mean there were like three or four ref bumps Pretty brutal Booker T now has the advantage He goes for the kick and then the flapjack He goes for the cover but the ref is out And then Booker tries to get the ref back up But then Steiner knocks him out again he goes to hit Booker T. Um, we get a, a, a was I think a sidewalk slam there. Booker goes up top, but uh, Steiner ends up knocking him off the top rope. We we get a couple bear hugs. It's not the slow. I mean, there are some. It doesn't feel all that slow because he's moving out into outside. He's kind of talking trash to the fans. Steiner's kind of doing his shtick, so it doesn't feel all that slow throughout the match. Maybe. Maybe could have been cut a tad Because this thing goes about 16 minutes When it's all said and done I didn't really have too much of a problem with it I think if we would have cut down a few of the ref bumps And maybe cut down this match to maybe 12 or 13 minutes I would have liked it a little bit more Towards the end We get a uh, What what looks like it's going to be a pin Booker gets the shoulder up He ends up ducking a clothesline He hits a, a suplex But then the the finishing spot too was just poorly done, Andrew. We couldn't even tell what happened. You really had to watch it on the replays over and over. Like the crowd had no idea that Scott Steiner was hitting Booker T with something on the way down. And so it was yeah, I just didn't I I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I thought it was fine. I just the these two guys were Booker was pretty good around this period And Scott Steiner actually does have some good matches And he his heel gimmick and his heel shtick was fine This just wasn't anything One of the best matches on the night Wasn't one of the worst matches on the night it, Like I said, I, I gave you my gripes I would have cut a few minutes off of it So, if it wasn't for the ref bumps I would like that a lot more Because the match itself was absolutely fine These two guys had good chemistry together And Booker T is genuinely over And Almost ready to break into the main event scene You can see it with him The crowd likes him He can work He can talk He's someone fairly new on the singles scene Despite the fact that he had been there In tag teams with Harlem Heat For quite a long while So it was a guy that WCW needed to run with At some point They did very briefly before they closed And you could see it with him This is a guy that absolutely had it for sure. So the match itself was fine. I actually like the foreign object stuff. I mean, for goodness sake, look at the MJF punk match from a couple of weeks ago on dynamite for the hidden foreign objects. I, I do. That's, I do think trick as old as, yeah, I, I just think that. they set it up a little bit better. They you know, did. I, that's, and it's a lot better because we, wrestling now is presented a lot differently than it mm-hmm. was 20 years ago. And honestly, we there have like camera angles to do exactly, that. Exactly. I was going to say HD cameras are just better. Like we're yep. gonna see things way better. We're and we kind of the thing with with Scott Steiner is they weren't kind of teasing it enough. I don't think in that match, like the teasing was all of the ref bump spots more than him having any kind of a foreign object or a weapon. Maybe if they would have teased that a little more earlier, that we would have been oh he ended up using it. It sort of came out of like he had it, and then it looked like Booker kind of was getting the better of him, and then all of a sudden it was like oh we we saw in the replay. So I didn't think it was. I just think it might have been hard for the for the live crowd there and afterwards. But I agree with you. I like the spot. I like the idea of the spot. So I will give, and that's why I wasn't going to crap on the match all too much because you know what? 
this wasn't a bad attempt for them. Like it was a good idea. The execution was fine. It was a, a way to try to keep Booker sort of strong, someone that you liked, and it was another heel. Heelish thing for Scott Steiner This guy who you're trying to get over as a heel So it was checking a lot of the boxes For things they wanted to do I just thought the execution of it towards the end was a little bit sloppy But I won't give them You know I appreciate trying And not just getting lazy Like they would end up doing in some of the coming Months and and year or so Here it seemed like they This match was plotted out They liked both of these guys they thought they both had upside So you, you actually Kind of feel good about Coming out of this match because you actually Where these guys go Even though this company's out of business Not too long Both these guys actually have pretty decent runs Towards the end of the company When you compare it to everybody else They were guys that actually had earned their shot And kind of got an opportunity It stinks that it wasn't in the best You know, you know They weren't on in, in, in this company That was thriving anymore But those two guys weren't two of the guys that ended up being the problem for WCW at the end. Well, Steiner was a problem. It was just off camera that yeah, he wound yeah. up being the problem. Behind- and also, he cut a promo on Ric Flair that basically encouraged people to turn the channel to WWF <laughs> because WCW oh, sucks. He ended so- up being nuts. But he, had, but we don't. What's funny is, like at this point, we don't know he's nuts, and I don't think. You know, he he was someone who actually had dis- been a tag team wrestler for many years. Who was someone who had been in good matches, who had put in a lot of the work, who had sort of earned the stripes. And he wasn't going to be a face of anyone's company or anything. But I did. You do sort of feel good about where these two guys head for a little while at the end of this company, coming off of this match. And and I don't even mind where we go in the next two matches, Andrew. Honestly, you know, on paper I was like, oh no, we're going to get Nash and Goldberg again, and then the the four corners match, but both of these matches were at least what you would have been hoping for to maybe even over delivering. And that's yeah. all you can ask for, right? That's all you can ask for. You can't go into a Goldberg Nash match expecting these guys to have a five star match because that just isn't possible. But what you can hope for is that it's not something that's too long, it's not something that goes too slow or drags. There aren't any real botch spots, nobody really gets hurt. Here, these two guys had sort of weird attitudes with each other. So, you know what? I didn't mind it. I really didn't think it was all that bad. And it was, it was what, what they absolutely needed to do because they they had to have, you know, uh, Goldberg get the win back. We got the video package there. Actually, I guess before we saw that, we saw Rey Mysterio backstage with the with the the internet. You know, the, the crew. He was talking to Mark Madden and uh, poor Ray, no, no masked Ray there. Nash has Goldberg or Nash versus Goldberg. He has Lex Luger and Liz, Miss Elizabeth, accompanying him. He comes out first. He grabs the mic. He does the hey yo wolf pack in the house shtick. Now, Goldberg doesn't really he, he's gotten better, I think, but at this point of his career, this dude hadn't really sold very much. Like he was not in matches where he was selling really at all. In the first four matches, for the first four minutes of this, Andrew, it's it's kind of like a squash for Nash. And I will say, like Goldberg will never be thought of as the best seller in the world. But at this point, I thought he was doing okay for someone who hadn't been in this spot all that much. And it sort of made sense because Nash was the bigger guy, kind of had the took the advantage early on. 
And you know Goldberg battles back The crowd's still really into Goldberg here We get um, Nash hitting the low blow And so that you know is part of the reason why He's able to gain some of that advantage early on Sidewalk slam from Nash He's choking Goldberg in the ropes Kind of smashing him up against them And and then Goldberg is finally able to turn the tables He's he's able to duck a couple punches And he gets a uh, Kind of trips Nash Then he goes for a spear But Nash actually jumps over the spear This was impressive How like, about that from Nash? You, you I couldn't was- believe it you knew there was some athleticism there with Nash. And we talked about this a while back. The problem with Nash wasn't that he couldn't work. It was that he chose not to. A lot. He what was his he did the least amount of work for the most amount of money possible. That was his One thing. Of the smartest men in the history he of the business. He was. He was. And honestly, when you hear him talk about things sometimes, the guy he would make a lot of sense with the things he he would say. This was a cool spot. I forgot about that. I watched that thing four or five times back. Really impressed by uh by Nash there, and so he ends up jumping out of the way. And the poor ref, we get another ref bump here. So the ref is out, which uh which means Luger can come in. He brings a chair in and he starts hitting Goldberg with the chair. Nash tries to go for his his power bomb, the jack knife, but Goldberg ends up battling out of it. Luger comes back in to try to help out again But Goldberg gets rid of Luger He ends up hitting a spear on Nash And he sets up the jackhammer Bobby kind of messed it up a little bit He said Goldberg's going to hit the jackknife I, I made sure to say jackknife for Nash Because I, I was sc- going to screw it up A couple times myself when I was typing a- Typing out <laughs> some of my notes But um, and And I will say the jackhammer was kind of ugly looking Like you're never going to get a good looking jackhammer On 7 foot Kevin Nash At this point but I thought this was as probably as good as what you could have hoped for from these two guys. If it's if this was the match you wanted, right? If this if you wanted to tell this story where you had the heel going working over early and then you have Goldberg fight back, I think it's either this or you're having Goldberg do one of his normal Goldberg squashes. But they don't. You couldn't really do that at this point anymore with guys that were on the top tiers of the card because what are what are you going to do? Right, like if Goldberg's squashing the top two or three guys on the card, who else is there for him to wrestle? You had to at least have these matches go, you know, seven, ten minutes or so. And Nash talks about that, how that was problem with Goldberg early is that, you know, at house shows and stuff, they would, you you can't have him just squash everybody all the time. The guy's gonna have to go ten or fifteen minutes sometimes in house shows, and it was, it was different for him because he was not used to that. I thought it was fine. I liked this a lot, and this proves my theory that beating Bill Goldberg wasn't the worst idea in the world. They did that at Starcade. There was a large pop when Nash got the title. Nash was over. I'll even go so far as to say that the finger poke of doom wasn't the worst idea in the world. The problem is what that sets up is Goldberg running roughshod through everybody else to get back the title he got screwed out of, and WCW just did not know how to tell that story. So that's why that wound up floundering as much as it did. If it's me, I book this match exactly the way it was. I give Hogan the title in the main event. Now, we'll get to why that didn't necessarily happen. There was a legitimate injury here, even though you can tell he's clearly working. But... I give Hogan the title in the main event. You find some way to do that. 
And then you wind up with Goldberg going against Savage at the Great American Bash, and you wind up with Goldberg Hogan at Bash at the Beach, which Eric Bischoff always regarded as the main super show rather than Starcade. Mm-hmm. But if your objective here is to get Goldberg his win back, mission accomplished. This was absolutely fine. Told a decent story. And I liked the first couple of minutes where Nash wound up manhandling the guy because you're thinking, oh, they can't possibly beat him again. Could they? Could they? And then everything breaks down. You're like, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. And then Nash throws in a leapfrog for good measure. Like, talk about unexpected. That was cool. Yeah, even some of the, like, overall on this show, even some of the... Interference and some of the outside interference and stuff. It made it was it was made sense. It was part of the story. They were people that were associated with them. It was someone's direct manager or valet or people that were with them. We didn't get the groups and groups of NWO and you know just all this crazy outside interference all the time. And and I like that a lot. I mean, we get some of the endings are still a little bit wonky, but for the most part, it was. A pretty clean show through a lot of it Which I think just makes it a little bit better Because it was never a talent issue With this roster This roster had a lot of talented people That could do a lot of different things in the ring Wrestle a lot of different styles Hell, you could tell them whatever you wanted And they could they could go out and do it It was just the way this company was run Right? They didn't, they didn't get the best out of their talent Like we were saying with Paul Heyman It was the opposite They They had all these talented people That they just let flounder most of the times This was one of the nights that it felt like around this time period They did as good of a job as they could Throughout most of the night Really, I was very pleasantly surprised with this show As we went through and through And as we get to the main event We've got the Four Corners match For the WCW World Heavyweight Championship Macho Man Randy Savage is a special guest referee With Gorgeous George As the uh, the guy's Kind of ooh and ah. We need to pause here. Please and do. I, I need to I need to do this and we need to knock all this out before we move on because this story has a lot of layers to it. So they bring Randy Savage back. He had just gotten over, I believe it was a very bad knee injury. And he brings in Gorgeous George, his then girlfriend. She had a lot of issues at the time. She was a dancer at a uh, gentleman's club in Florida. I think that's about the most diplomatic way I can say that. And she had a lot of problems when she met Randy Savage. And there are a lot of stories out there about that time in her life that are not good. So if you're rewatching this, yes, she's absolutely stunning. There's a lot going on beneath the surface there. You don't always know what battles people are fighting. And this is legitimately scary stuff that she's talked about in a couple of podcasts. She had an interview with uh, David Penzer on his podcast in February of last year. So about a year ago, it's absolutely worth your time. There's a lot that was happening at this point for both Gorgeous George and for Randy Savage. It was good to see Savage back. And Savage is still legitimately over because he's Randy freaking Savage, right? And he gets his moment in this particular match. More on that later. But if we're going to ogle Gorgeous George, we got to realize, okay, there's a lot of shit going on here. Yeah, it, was it It was the dark side of the ring? No, no, it was the Randy bio recently, yeah. last year, right, on A&E that yes. we found out a lot about this. Yeah, we, we found out some more about this. But just, I got to say, I got... A few really cool Like the little kid in me moments Where it's like wow You've got 
and and this is not to take anything away from DDP because let let's at this point DDP was one of the most over baby faces in wrestling. DDP during a time period where Stone Cold Steve Austin and Goldberg and like The Rock were there, DDP was like on that level of a babyface when he was at his peak. He really was. He was that hot for periods of time. But when you talk about the all-time greats, I mean, you've got Macho Man refereeing this match. You've got Flair, Hogan, and Sting all in the ring together. That's just pretty cool. And, yeah. and this was were were all of them. A little past their prime at this time Yes, but they all still had a little bit Left at this time And Sting was just coming back off of a six month Break, the last time we had seen him Wrestle was Halloween Havoc 98 against Brett, so He was fully recharged And I believe, don't quote me on this I believe it was in this six month Absence where he got, he clean, got clean And got I think off so. the drugs If he looked a little bit better, he had a he, much big, better bounce He was flying around the yeah. ring And to be fair All four of these guys were Hogan brought the working boots Flair brought the working boots And you knew DDP was going to bring the working boots too This was the first five minutes of this match Are a lot to follow Because again This is 1999 They couldn't really follow the action When all four guys were pairing off And going in opposite corners of the ring And going in and out of the ring It was a little tough to follow But the energy was absolutely there And I commend the guys for that I do too. We had the four corners match for the world heavyweight title: Ric Flair versus Hollywood Hogan versus Sting versus DDP. Macho Man as the special guest referee. Short video package, and then Macho Man and Gorgeous George come out, and everyone comes out, and uh, we get the bell rings. Hogan and Flair go at it, and Page and Sting they go at it. I mean, we're just getting all of the cool spots too. Scorpion Deathlock. He comes back with the DDT. Sting and Page. Like you're saying, so we're just getting sort of little little matchups here and there. Sting and Page for a bit, Stinger Splash, but then here comes Flair and Hogan and DDP start going at it, and then Flair and Sting they're going at it. Sting and sends DDP over the top. Now Hogan and Flair are going at it in the ring. Just really cool combos. Hogan he gets the belt and he he sends Flair into the corner, and Flair. Going uh, going to the chest of Hogan with some chops But Hogan no-sells them He hits the leg drop And Sting breaks up the pin Now Flair and Hogan are going at it And he puts he locks in the figure four Sting and DDP are going at it And Hogan turns the, turns the figure four over We then get the Bret Hart figure four around the post Your favorite, Andrew Your favorite move here That Sting ends up Coming to break it up I just kept writing lots of fun DDP is hugely over The crowd is really into this And then we get a trainer who runs down And we lo- it looks like Hogan's injured Tanae says that the Hogan injury Was was like a snap Like Joe Theismann Like oh okay um, Yeah now it's one of those things Where Hogan was Legitimately in pain He had a lot of knee troubles this year to the point where when he was on the road with WCW, there were times he had to get his knee drained multiple times per week in order to be able to function appropriately and be able to perform. There, in fact, were rumblings, depending on who you believe, that it might have been career threatening if they weren't able to figure something out. They did wind up figuring something out, and obviously he kept right on going, but 
This was at least somewhat legitimate and designed to give him some time off. Darren Zocali is somewhere steaming, ideally, because he's probably disagreeing with all of this and probably just thought this was a way to get him out of the match without losing. But it's one of those things where there is at least a little bit of truth to Mm -hmm. what you're seeing on the screen. So he is actually out of the match now And you don't get the comeback spot or anything You know where people are maybe assuming Hogan's going to come back That doesn't that doesn't happen This was a way to get him in You know and like it, it did both He doesn't have to do too much in here He's legitimately hurt But it does also keep him strong And Hogan doesn't have to lose for no reason here So he he's out And we've got Paige and Sting Going at it in the corner uh, DDP with some elbows He goes for a diamond cutter But Sting sort of pushes him And he ends up hitting a face buster Then Sting picks him up for a pile driver But DDP flips it around Then he hits the pile driver himself Kind of a cool uh, When you think about You know The Undertaker in, in some of the future years With DDP and their interactions Flair Now he gets in So so it's a triple threat Here now with these three guys We get a Sting hitting Ric Flair with the superplex And then he goes for the pin But Rick gets the, the shoulder up And there's a, a spot that Was kind of goofy but also Kind of popped me a little bit The three man sleeper spot I was like <laughs> it was just weird But it was something you'll, you'd see it like an indie show You know and the crowd would pop for it But it did kind of make me laugh It, sort, it didn't make a whole lot of sense Sting ends up hitting a, a jawbreaker and, and he drops both of them So Page uh, DDP and Flair are both working on Sting, but then he makes the comeback. So double clothesline from him, then a face buster. I mean, I thought Sting was going to win this a couple times too. Uh, we get the Stinger splash, then he locks in the Scorpion Deathlock, but DDP is able to break that thing up. Then Sting hits the Scorpion Death Drop, and everybody's down. Flair he hits a knee drop. And then he locks in the figure four But Sting is able to flip it over He gets to the ropes And as it looks like he's going to get the the, the, held, uh, the hold broken Macho Man kicks his hand off of them He drags both men to the middle He ends up flying elbow drop to Ric Flair And then DDP is the first man up DDP ends up uh, ducking And hitting a diamond cutter For the win the end the the announcers didn't really know what was happening so it got a little a little convoluted at the end they weren't sure who was who and the last couple minutes did slow down a little bit i had a lot of fun with this match i mean it went 17 and a half it probably could have cut 2 minutes off and been 15 and a half or so but we were talking about the way this show was laid out i think they needed they had a three-hour window, probably. They had to add a, a Scotty Riggs, Mikey Whipwreck. So they probably needed some of those matches like Steiner Booker T to be 16 instead of 14. They needed this to be 17 and a half instead of 15. You know, they needed some of these matches to be a tad longer than they probably should have been. But I don't have any problems with this thing. I had this like two and a half to three to three, you know, two and a half at the low, three at the high. But the nostalgia gave it a little more for me I liked it and I liked the fact that While the booking was a little wonky At the end and what happened It felt like the right guy went over And DDP ends up winning his first title This was a guy who had earned it Another, You, you feel pretty satisfying About some of the results In some of these last few matches Because it's okay, Goldberg's getting over and he's getting the win You've got Booker T and Steiner In a match where they, they both Look like you're setting them up to look good moving forward And now you've got DDP as the champ So th- those aren't bad ways to end Some of your top matches 
No, I had this at three and a quarter, bordering on three and a half. My big issue was after Hogan left, there was about a five-minute stretch where it followed the two guys wrestle, one guy gets a breather sort of formula. And that wound up being, I thought, a step down from when all four guys were really working hard to start the match and the crowd was really into it. But as this match went, I thought it was pretty darn good. A lot of energy, a lot of excitement. Crowd was into it. And DDP winds up winning his first title. Now, what they did with Paige after this, can't say I agree with that. You've got a guy that you basically put the rocket on when you gave him the world title and you turn him heel, even though the crowd loves him. And then after he loses the title, you shun him back down the card. I don't get it. I thought there was money with DDP, maybe not a ton, but there was some there. He earned the right to have a championship reign that was at least well-booked. And ultimately, it lasted a week, two weeks, if that. That was unfortunate. But for the sake of this match, a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Good main event. Really good show. A lot of fun. Not a lot of filler. It's two hours and 40 minutes, and it goes by quick. For 1999 WCW, you can't ask for much more than what we got. No, I agree. I thought it was a really good show. I said there there were nine matches. There were the three matches that were like the second, third, and fourth on the card that to me were maybe the my least favorite matches or matches that I was sort of underwhelmed with or just eh, you know, like we said, the plunder match isn't really my style, but I wasn't gonna be too hard on them for that. The other match was felt like a, a TV match. And then the one that I really just didn't like was the disco Conan match. Everything else I was either fine with. Or it, it impressed me So good uh, good call Andrew This would have never been a show that I would have picked But I'm pleasantly surprised that we watched it It didn't ever feel like a waste of time at all It's a fun I'm sure a lot of you who are listening to this show Are probably the types who I mean I like to I'm always watching something or listening to something when I'm working I'm just a, a podcast or a show Or something And I'm, a lot of times wrestling is great background noise Especially old wrestling stuff Because who cares if you look down for a little while and you miss a few things here or there? This is a good background show, you know, a good show to have on while you're doing some work. You catch some really good matches. You have some fun like this. It, I would want this to be even more than that. Like this is a good show where you want to make sure you get some focus on at least a couple of the uh, the really top tier matches. So good call, Andrew Champagne, on this one. And uh, yeah, DZ he, he missed. I'm I'm curious if he he rewatched this one or not, but he if he didn't, he actually missed a, a pretty good show. So yeah, I know. Usually my track record with picking WCW shows is just to make them suffer, but here we needed to look at this show because after this, it's slim pickings for WCW. They'd be out of business a little less than two years later, and if there's a pay per view that's anywhere above slightly above average between this one and the last pay per view they ever did. I don't know what it was So Evil Andrew was nowhere to be found Today uh, and Andrew I was kind of dancing around a few different shows And I'm going to settle on one that We've talked about a long uh, A few different times but we've never gotten To it and this is going to be a cool Show to discuss because there are a lot Of really interesting Topics on here we're going to go back to WWF we're going to go to 1997 and we're going to go to SummerSlam Oh okay so We've got in the main event that Brett Undertaker match where Shawn Michaels is a special guest referee that sort of sets up the Hell in a Cell match that then to the Montreal screw job later in the year. So that sets up this is the last couple months of Brett in the WWF at the time period. We've got the Austin breaking his neck. 
with Owen yeah, in that match. Yeah, that's going to be tough. That's going to so, be tough. The, the thing that is, it's what's nice, I don't say nice about it, but it's 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 such a weird dynamic because obviously Owen not around now. Austin, who you look at that match and you see what happened, he's fine. I mean, he's his he had a wrestling career after it. This this is one of the events that actually kind of spearheaded Austin even more. He what happened in the months after this, where he was on TV all the time cutting promos that got him over incredibly. So we'll have a lot to discuss there. We've got the uh, Mankind Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Really fun feud that's a, a cage match To open things up one of the few times When Brian Pillman was actually in a wrestling Ring in the WWF During this time period he didn't ha- He didn't have many chances where he actually was Able to physically even get in a ring And he had that f- kind of fun intense Feud with Goldust we've got LOD Godwins but yeah wow This is a sad show when we think about it too Look at we got the Bulldog We've got you know LOD we've got Pillman We've got Owen all uh who aren't with us and are big part of parts of this show So a little bit sad When we're talking about it but this was one that I thought was a very good show and I remember At the main event I remember being really good It goes almost 30 minutes with those two guys And this will be one where We will have a lot to discuss Just talking points whether they're Positive negatives good or Bad just a lot of interesting Characters in a cool time period of the WWF Yeah this is Uh like dark side of the ring, old wrestling rewatch. It, it is. It's, it uh, is. there's a lot going on. I remember watching this show and I remember seeing the end of the main event, which I'm not going to spoil because we're going to be talking about it a lot. Young me didn't get it. Old me thinks it's genius. And I'm going to be looking forward to rewatching that match. We're going to get to WWF SummerSlam 1997 on the next old wrestling rewatch. Andrew, buddy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We got through this one pretty quick today, but this was a good show. This was a good show, and it's uh, it's one that I would always recommend to to someone to go back and watch Spring Stampede 1999. We're going to jump into SummerSlam 1997, and uh, I mean, anytime that I can get a chance to get a little more Bret Hart, you know, you know I'm going to go in that direction. <laughs> you, know, you know, that's where I'm going to go. So I'm sure Darren will be happy to hear that one. What um, So we're recording this. A few days before the Super Bowl People are probably going to hear this Right after the Super Bowl Tell us what's going on uh, with Andrew right now New work stuff, where can we find all your content And uh, anything you want to plug Yeah, this is pretty cool For those of you that follow me on Twitter At Champagne, You know I just started a brand new job At Katina Media It's an affiliate marketing group that produces a lot And I mean a lot Of gambling related content News, picks, insights, a lot of cool stuff across about 60 different sites. So there's no shortage of work. That's for darn sure. And I've actually already started doing some horse racing stuff for them as well. The site is playfecta.com. That'll have my picks, my analysis, wagering strategies, all that good stuff. And of course, you'll be able to follow me on Twitter and I'll link to everything there. I'm really excited. I'm working with a lot of really cool people doing a lot of things that are hyper-focused on things I'm really passionate about. I've been out of the gambling industry full-time for a little more than three years. Honestly, didn't think I would ever get the opportunity to go back. I'm back and I like what I'm doing. So that's about all I can ask for, right? Love hearing that, buddy. We'll uh, look forward to collaborating with you on uh, on a lot more stuff in the coming months. Thanks for your time again. And uh, DZ will be back with us next week to talk some uh, Bret Hart and some 97 WWF. So do not go anywhere, folks. Still plenty more to discuss on this episode of That's What G Said. 
That show wasn't bad. It really wasn't. There's very few shows in that era, in that time period in WCW that were decent. So shout out to Andrew for finding that one. And a big thank you to Matt Velasco for helping us out with the Book of Boba Fett, Episode 7. We look forward to talking with Matt again as uh, more Star Wars projects come up in the next few months. Hopefully we were able to make some money for you out at Tampa or at Sam Houston. Don't forget about all those great stable duel games. Check in every single day there. And on the next episode, we'll have Martha Clausen previewing a big Saturday at Sam Houston. We'll have Eric recapping the Super Bowl. And we'll talk some NBA trade deadline and what happened there. A lot of the player movement. And then we'll get into Friday and Saturday racing for you. Hope everyone has a great rest of your week. And we'll be back in just a few days. Talk soon.